0: podcast. The discipline that I learned from sport really helped the creativity because if you still give yourself some sense of structure then you're working towards something and that's the same in sport. If you really want to get to the top you have to be creative how you're going to push your mind and your body to truly achieve greatness. It's all about mindset.
1: I once believed that you could either be an athlete or an artist, but never both. And certainly you couldn't do both at the highest level, at the elite level. Well, here today to break this paradigm is five-time world champion, professional triathlete, and Oscar-nominated screenwriter of last year's smash hit, All Quiet on the Western Front. Her name is Leslie Patterson, and she's got 400 triathlons to her name. She's a three-time XTERRA triathlon world champion, a two-time world triathlon cross champion. But if you ask Leslie what her greatest test of endurance has been, she's not gonna tell you that it's some PR or some win at a race. It would be chasing an Oscar. Because for the last 16 years, during her professional triathlon career, Leslie fought to secure and maintain the film rights to All Quiet, based on the book, out of her own pocket from race winnings. She wrote and rewrote the script many times over, and despite the odds being stacked heavily against her, just never gave up on her dream of getting this movie made. After many, many years of starts and stops and high-profile actors on and off the project, this film finally gets made and ends up becoming embraced as this absolute award season darling last year, taking home four Oscars and seven BAFTAs, including one for Best Adapted Screenplay. And not for nothing, this was Leslie's very first screenplay, I might add, all of which is just an incredible testament to Leslie's patience, her discipline, and her hard work. And it is this relentless persistence that is the focus of today's conversation. i got a whole bunch more I want to say about Leslie before we get into it, but first. We're brought to you today by On. the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, Leslie Patterson. We also discuss self-belief, playing the long game, how to set audacious goals, keep promises to yourself, and how to work towards them and the never quit, drive required to do amazing things. If you like this exchange, please check out her movie, of course, if you haven't seen it. And also check out her book, The Brave Athlete, which is packed with actionable practices to build an endurance mindset. Needless to say, there is a lot to be learned from this fiery Scottish lassie. So listen, learn, and enjoy. This is me and Leslie Patterson. I can't believe I have you here. I'm so excited to talk to you. You are like at the apex of these two worlds that I love colliding with each other because you're this peak performance, like pinnacle example of elite performance, not only in endurance sports, but also somebody who's operating at the highest level of creativity for which obviously you were recognized this year. And in that regard, you're like this, Unicorn, it's insane. (laughs) The more I learn about your story and I was thinking about it and wondering in the history of Hollywood, has there ever been, setting actors aside, because that's a different thing, but has there ever been a world champion athlete who's also been nominated for an Oscar?
0: Do you know what? I did Google that at some point.
1: You
2: did. You
0: know, the (laughs) the, the, the narrative that you looked into it. Yeah. (laughs) And I think I found someone like way, way back. Mm. um, But I think you're right. I think it was more on the acting side. I think Kobe Bryant, though.
1: Yeah, Kobe. Well, you know, there was Johnny Weissmuller. There's people like that. But also, They went into Hollywood when their career was over in in sports, right? Like you're still doing it, like you're doing these, you're on these parallel
0: tracks, and
1: you know achieving great heights in both simultaneously, which is just bananas.
0: Yep, I'm I'm pretty crazy, and my husband can attest to that. So, uh, man, I was I was born kicking and screaming and running running out of the womb. So. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. well, we're gonna get into all of that, but I do know that your husband, Simon, has described you as feral. And I found this quote by him where he said, or you said, he says, I'm like one of those toys, you wind up and point in a direction and it just goes. I've always been like that. My mom said that I came out of the womb running, as you just said, Uh, I've always been so driven. Everyone criticizes me for it or has done in the past, like you're so intense or you're so obsessive, but this is who I am.
0: Right, 100%. Yeah,
1: so it's just bred into you from day one.
0: Yeah, I think I've just always had such a huge desire in my belly. It's like this fire in my belly to do things, to um, just so much drive to achieve, to push, to excel and I do not know where that comes from. I don't know if it's the Calvinistic love of suffering or what the hell it is, Uh but it- Was that the way
1: that you were brought up? I know your dad was somebody who kind of you know, provided a lot of of support and structure Mm -hmm. to help you achieve your goals and your mom was more on the artistic side, so that makes Mm. sense. But was there an expectation or a pressure or is that something that's self-generated?
0: It's self-generated, but then when you consider that I'm the youngest of four Mm. in a Scottish family, um, where it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep going. Uh, no moaning, no whining, fight for your food at the table, but a lot of love and support. So it's it's both of those elements I think that Mm -hmm. have bred this drive and have, have kind of filtered this drive in me. Yeah,
1: the sporting side of you is not a case in which you discovered triathlon later in life and pursued it, sport, is bred into you from the Mm get-go, beginning with rugby of all things. (laughs) So can you tell that story of falling in love with rugby as a young girl?
0: Yeah, you know, I loved to get dirty, I still do. And I went to watch my brother play rugby. So I remember holding my dad's hand and going down to the rugby fields in Scotland, you know, the rain's coming at you mm-hmm. sideways. And I said, dad, dad, I want to go at that. And he's like, well, Les, you do know there's no girls playing, right? And I'm like, great, I'll get to beat up on the boys. So um, yeah, he just kind of threw me in there. And it was a rough and tumble of it. I absolutely love that. And I love the team nature of it. Uh, and I think I, You know, if anyone told me I couldn't do anything, that was it, red rag Mm -hmm. to a bull. you know, that kind of sentiment.
1: Mm -hmm. I have the sense that's still the case.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Well, it has to be if you're in Hollywood. Because right. everyone's going to tell you can well, do. Well, it's
1: it. just a yeah. It's a it's a you know of all industries, it's the one where you're exposed to failure probably yep. most regularly. Oh
0: yeah, minute by minute.
1: Yeah, and your story is certainly
0: <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yes. full of a
1: lot of no's. <laughs> yes. Uh, but on the rugby thing, I mean, you you're downplaying a little bit. I mean, you were the only girl of like 250 players, right? right? And you right. guys ended up like winning the Scottish Championships when yep. you were 10. Yep.
0: Totally.
1: So you yeah. were like, what was that like? mixing it up in the scrum as a 10 year old girl. With it a whole was, bunch of it was really
0: funny because a lot of the boys initially would not wanna touch me or they'd, you know, I'd walk on the pitch, right? And they would laugh and they would giggle and they would point fingers. So you had to get really thick skin. But then as I sort of grew into the team, right? and And, and they recognized that I was good at what I did they all got behind me and then you just become this unit. And that's what I loved. And then I became the captain of the team Mm -hmm. and, Yeah, it was just like, it was the most amazing experience because it was filled with such adversity. Like I remember going to rugby on a Saturday morning, it'd be freezing cold, you weren't allowed to wear gloves, you'd be in shorts in the winter with snow. And I didn't have a changing room, right? I'm the only girl. So, all the boys have these nice hot showers. I just had this little cubicle. It was a woman's toilet and a you know, crappy rugby club in Scotland. And I remember like not being able to get my laces and done because we're so cold and I'd be washing myself, I was only like seven or eight, I'd be washing myself off in the basin and you know, all this kind of stuff. So I think that adversity really helped me uh, to then achieve the things that I have in later life. And my parents, it's like they were always there, they were always supportive, but it was a case of we're gonna drop you off and you go figure it out. But we'll be there to pick you up at the end. Uh-huh. So, and yeah, I think that's a testament to their parenting. That sense that you always know they're going to be there for you, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they're sending you off to letting figure you, it out.
1: you know, skin your knees yep. without them, you know, yep. putting a net down.
0: Oh, totally. And they didn't—they didn't come to every match. It, it's not like you know, so many of my friends and their parents here. Every single game they go to, and da 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 da. It's like. Hells no, yeah. you know, they would come to the big one, that's great. But the rest of the time it was, and we even went on bus trips. I remember we did a tour around the country and I must have only been nine or 10. And it was just all men and me. Wow,
1: wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like flashing on the opening scene in the biopic of your life, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting knocked down and scrubbing the getting dirt off your...
0: <laughs> but I used to do the best thing ever. I remember coming home and I'd be getting in the hot bath um, and I'd love to count how many bruises and how many scratches I had on my knees. It was like a badge of honor. You know, I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, it was 12 today. And um, and the best bit about it is my niece Zoe, who's 12 now, she plays rugby and she's amazing. In Scotland? And, yep, in Scotland. Wow. And, and and so I go to watch her every time I go home and she's the same. She loves all the mud and the bruises and the bashes. And it's she's like a mini me, which yeah. is quite funny.
1: But then you would go and do ballet in the afternoon, right, yep. <laughs> or like afterwards
0: totally. or? <laughs> yep, yep, in the afternoon. So it's this
1: like, I'm getting this sense or this picture of the yin and yang, you know, like yep. there's always these tensions in this case, the masculine and the feminine, but the creative and the athletic or the kind of need that you have to have as an athlete to have that, that motor or that self-will or that ability to push yourself to be disciplined and to suffer. But then on the creative side, to know when um, to be in presence, to be in the allowing, like you can't right. force a creative result, yeah. like you can force a strength result or an right. athletic result. It's a different equation that you have to solve for.
0: No, it totally is. And I think that I didn't, I didn't realize that right, growing up, that one was helping the other. And I was always told along the way, if you wanna be good at anything, you have to choose one thing and go Sure.
1: First. Yeah, that was like right in my outline. Like yep. my whole life. Like there's athletes and there's artists. Right. And never the twain shall no. meet. These are people who are configured differently. Yep. And you, it's up to you to figure out which one of those two. If you're interested in both, you kind of have to pick one.
0: Totally. And no, nobody's
1: going to yeah. tell you that it's cool to do both.
0: No, absolutely. And and you're kind of like an outlier in both, right? So, you know, as an athlete. You're you're you know, everyone makes fun of the artists and they have a completely different time clock. They stay up all night, mm-hmm. they smoke, they don't take care of their bodies, they have they cannot understand the athlete. Um, and then equally, you know, um the the the, the, the artist is like, you know, they have no sense of the athlete, what that's like. You know, n- neither camp can truly understand, and yet I feel like there's so much similarity and there's so much you can draw down from, from, each, from each craft.
1: So what would be some of those things?
0: So I think the main thing is the discipline that I learned from sport uh, really helped the creativity because as ethereal is, being creative and when is that good idea gonna come? If you still give yourself some sense of structure, then you're working towards something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly when it comes to to screenplay writing, right? There's a lot of structure. It's almost like if you know the structure enough, then you can let it go and it becomes intuitive. And that's the same in sport. If you train enough to push yourself to the limits enough, then in the race, you'll find your zone. So it's kind of like, the same Um, and then equally, I think in sport, if you really want to get to the top, you have to be creative. You have to think outside the box about how you're going to push your mind and your body to truly achieve greatness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went down a lot of systems in sport. you know, a lot of national bodies, the British national body. And certainly this was back kind of in the nineties and the early two thousands when they weren't as developed as they are now. But it was so, it was like, okay, there's one way to do this. And right. if you're not good at this one way, then you're never going to be a world champion. And I wasn't good at that one way, and I'm like, well, yeah, but I still think I could be good. Mm-hmm. Um, so the creativity allowed me to investigate so many other ways, and I love it because my husband Simon says it's it's you know a cargo net, it's not a ladder mm. to the top. Explain
1: that it's so a cargo net. A cargo not net a ladder. means
0: there's many different ways to the top. A ladder, there's one. The one there's way. One yeah, yeah, route. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's, that's kind of a beautiful analogy because that's how I think I've gotten to the top in both is just kind of like really going to the side and up and down and up and to the side and across and, and being at peace with that um, as well, which has taken time.
1: Right, because you are an outlier and you are bucking the system right. and as a result, there will be pushback or resistance or yep. criticism for trying to find a different way. Oh yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I, I think it, it 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 puts the lie to the test, this notion that the artist is struck with inspiration after, you know, a pack of cigarettes and a bottle of, you know, bourbon at three A.M. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you know helps one to realize, and this is a very kind of Stephen Pressfield, um, Seth Godin kind of thing, that that creativity is a discipline in the same way the pursuit of excellence in sport is it requires rigor and structure yeah. accountability and yep. all of those things you have to create those structures in order to make space for the creativity to appear
0: exactly you know in
1: that idea of like you know the war the war of art or turning pro like are right. you a professional like if you're a professional creative then you show up for it every day in the same way you show up for practice for right. your sport you can't say I have writer's block is that would be like saying, you know, I I, I have I have sport block today. Like I'm not going you know, I'm not totally, gonna totally. show up for practice.
0: But equally it's like even if you do have some kind of block or you're not making the forward momentum that you want to It's saying, how can I get a positive result today? What does that mean? What does that look like? And having, again, that's that cargo net analogy where, you know, what you deem to be successful on any given day, you know, is is different for every individual, but certainly Mm. for me in sport, right? I would have many shitty days. I mean, any top athlete, will tell you that many, many shitty days I've dealt with Lyme disease, chronic injuries so how can you find something positive that you can still make a step forward in some capacity whether that's mentally or physically and similarly you know on the on the art front on storytelling front on script writing front you know it's understanding how your brain works what suits you what doesn't how to still find kind some kind of momentum mm-hmm. even when you're having a bad day um and maybe that's um I'm such a positive person. I love to find the positivity in anything. And I don't know if that's because I grew up, you know, my dad's pretty, pretty, Tough Scottishman, mm-hmm. you know nothing is ever going to impress him. However, it has.
1: Now I'm getting now, the, it, now, now I'm getting it the truth. This is what yeah, I was getting at yeah, earlier. Yeah. yeah,
0: but you know no, nothing really impresses him, right? You know, and that real Scottish, you know, bring people down that were successful. Um, you know, whereas my mum is the opposite, right? Gushing and everything's mm-hmm. amazing, and, and, and so it's like you you kind of strike the balance between both. Uh, but they create your driving force to understand right. how to find positivity in any situation
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the rigor of sport applied to creativity enhances creativity and the creativity in turn um, enhances your uh, capability to perform as an athlete by putting you in a in a space of curiosity, right, yes. to not just do what the coach says or follow right. the plan, but right. to shoulder responsibility and yep. always be searching for new and different ways of, of you know, finding that extra notch of performance.
0: And I think to your point, it's self-reflection and a lot of athletes, they'll follow the coach, they'll follow the system and they won't take the responsibility and they won't self-reflect, who am I? you know, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Where are my weaknesses? What am I, you know, uh, when we talk about characters, we talk about the heart of darkness. Mm-hmm. What's your heart of darkness? You know, uh, I can tell you right now what mine is. It's that I'm not special. It's that I don't stand out. That's my heart of darkness. So every behavior lends itself to the pursuit of never having to face that heart of darkness. So when we're writing a screenplay, our... Characters, that's what it's about, finding that heart of darkness and that drives your story, that drives Mm -hmm. your character. Um, So having that kind of level of self-reflection and then of course my husband being a psychologist and understanding the science behind it has really helped me say, if that's the case, let's look at my training and let's really figure out where am I stressing myself physically and emotionally in any given day, in any given week, when I look at performance of something, I look at the performance mentally and physically, and then how do I be creative in finding ways to progress? Mm. Um, and again, that's that creativity helping. Mm-hmm. And then you create a structure out of that. And then you analyze with your kind of science brain and that helps you sort of achieve. Right. Yeah. Right,
1: an example that would spring to mind in the triathlon context would be, Uh, you're feeling shit that day and you're having a terrible run or ride or something like that. And instead of flogging yourself for it or giving up or stopping, instead to say, well, let's just work on technique. Like how can I like focus on the stride or whatever? How can I perfect these little things that often get overlooked when you're doing tempo work or pushing yourself harder and you're just trying to generate watts or a certain heart rate.
0: Right, and then I might even span that out and say, okay, that's kind of a, a physical process goal. Let's look at a mental one. How can I make myself feel really good today because I'm having a shitty day? You know, is it my training body? You know, that's been so critical to me across the years, Or training partners, and how they um, affect me, influence me, how I bond with them. That's a huge part of the social piece of it. The joy I find in it, because when you're suffering with someone else, you open up your soul to them. Um, so you have a very unique bond. So having the right training, partners, depending on how you're Mm -hmm. feeling. Um, where do I train? I'm very impacted by the environment, you know, um, does it need to be in a, you know, a beautiful climb that always has brought about good memories. I've had good performances on before, so I can go there and say this hill means something to me. It's gonna, it's gonna really make me feel good. And then I'm gonna, you know, work on the, technical piece. Um, so again, that's just mm-hmm. finding sort of positive elements that you can utilize mm. all the time. So you come away from every session with something that has moved you forward in some way.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think the taking responsibility piece comes with experience, right? When you're new, you right. do have to you know, allow somebody else to guide you in a more comprehensive way than you need later because you don't know anything, right? Right. Um, But then it's about slowly becoming more from an intuitive place as you start to learn about yourself. And I suppose in the screenwriting context, like the converse of that would be the person who, you know, doesn't know the rules but thinks they do but is intent on, you know, being the lone genius and writing the radical screenplay that, (laughs) and then refusing to take studio notes or whatever, you know, the development exec who tells you this doesn't work and you not being able to hear that and saying, you don't understand what a genius I am.
0: Right, right. Mm. And I mean, I'm super lucky in that I've married an amazing man who has spent his life being a top researcher. So I think, you know, Digging deep into the landscape of any craft that you're in and finding absolute joy in the mastery of the craft. And what does that mean? So taking every you know, screenwriting class we can imagine, knowing every theory that's out there, kind of almost like knowing everything so that you can mm-hmm. let it go
2: mm-hmm. and
0: find your own way, which again is ever evolving. And it depends on which project you're working with, which artists you're collaborating with, You know, is it a studio film, is it an independent film? There's so many different facets, but that's kind of the beauty in it. Um so yeah just kind of I think and it's the same as sport knowing almost uh, you know getting obsessive about knowing everything so that then you can find your own little path.
1: Right. Well triathletes are notorious for <laughs> just being obsessed with data and they walk around with blinders on and just think about their training and it's so individualistic, right? right. It's about you and you. Right. Screenwriting, filmmaking is a collaborative art. It's political, there's a lot of strong personalities, a lot of opinions, there's money involved. There's so many complexities. That puzzle is comprised of millions of pieces. uh, And it's, you know, very challenging for the most savvy political operator and the most talented creative to navigate that to a place where a movie actually gets made. It's like a miracle any movie gets made. And that's an incredibly different skill set than just, you know, I need to hit hit these watts and I'm training seven hours a day. Just it's just me in the basement or, you know, me out on the pavement.
0: It is and it's not, right? Because you're always having to navigate the many different things that's gonna make you have a good performance on any given day, whether that's, you know, how you're going to sleep, what you're going to eat, uh, what the facility is like. Then you've got, you know, as you are doing that activity, all of the tiny little details that come into making that a good session. So, for example, swimming. Shit, you know, technique in swimming, are you kidding me? It's like, okay, if you've got a slight pivot of the right hand and then you're coming and then, you know, get that elbow mm-hmm. high and da-da-da-da-da, You're thinking about all the muscles. So there's so many different things that come together to create a good performance um, that you have to think about on a daily basis. So I think actually I've developed-
1: And you're, you're not good at it until you're not thinking about it at all.
0: Right, which is what we all seek. And it comes very rarely. You know, of course, we all know it's called being in the zone, right? And I've experienced it only a handful of times to a real top level. Um, And that is the thing that everybody is chasing when it all Mm -hmm. comes together and you barely remember it, but there's just this beautiful meditative moment where your mind and body have just gone and it's fucking poetry.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and there's only so much you can do to invite that into your life. It has its own energy. You can set up the circumstances for that to arrive, but you can never put yourself in a position to be dependent on that.
0: Right. And I think that through hours, you know, I was always known as an athlete that would train a lot. I try and put myself in every single circumstance I could in order to um, create those neural pathways, right? So that I could cope with anything and still come up with the goods. And I think that that's again, why I've reached success is I've just kind of worked harder than anyone Mm -hmm. else. You know, I've pushed to the absolute fucking limit day upon day upon day and taking great joy in that as well. Like what am I capable of today? And, and, and I I really think about like, why, where does this need come from? And. Again, you know, coming back to my dad and it's interesting, a lot of our scripts have father daughter relationships in it. I love my dad, I'm so close with him. Um, But you know, he is from that school of, if you're too emotional, you're weak. Mm. And my mom was a very emotional person. So from a very young age, I saw emotion as being a weakness. So I thought if I could wrestle my brain and get on top of it, that I was a winner, that I'd succeeded. So I think my pursuit of finding that zen in sport, that that zone, that moment, is all about: have I been able to control my brain? Mm. Um. Oof! It's getting deep and dark in here. And your
1: (laughs) well, and your emotions when they should and need to come out when being emotive is is a benefit, right? You know, when you're writing, you need to be in touch with that sensibility. And when your dad comes in and you find that it's helpful for you to kind of shut it down a little bit to grit yourself through whatever painful experience you're about to encounter.
0: Right, interestingly, I wrote my master's thesis on something called task emotion theory. Don't ask me too much about it because I can't even bloody remember. (laughs) But the essence of it is taking the emotional essence or the value of of an, an emotion and putting that in a character um when you're when you're acting mm-hmm. so even if that emotional you know quality is nerves or anxiety you're seeing that as kind of having a value and then you're taking that and you're putting it in to fuel you it's almost like you're, you're gas right and mm-hmm. um, so I kind of saw emotion as a good thing rather than a bad thing so you take that emotion and you fuel it towards you you use it as a task emotion, mm, interesting. So yeah,
1: that's what happens in theater school. You write thesis papers. I thought it was just no. mask work and you know.
0: I know dancing. a right. No, but you know the funny thing is, is I you know I studied my undergraduate in drama and English mm. uh, in in at Loughborough University in England, and it was a very very theoretical degree. And I loved it. I love just digging deep into the theory of theater and the history and you know, all of that. Um, and again, that critical analysis has really helped me now that I'm in mm-hmm. the world of storytelling and, and screenplay mm-hmm. writing. And it, it's far you know, the magic is that you don't see it as an audience member. But right. the brutality is, is every single tiny little piece is an intricate bit that is put together to create this end result. And it's the same in sport. You train for hours and hours and hours and hours to have this perfect performance. And then everyone goes, oh my God, you're so amazing. You're so lucky. Wow, you're so talented. And I'm thinking, (laughs) you have no fucking idea. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And I've had had arguments with age groupers. Mm. I'm not joking. Like if I'm super, like maybe I'm hungry or I'm tired. I remember one, one day being in the shower after a master's swim session. And this lady said to me, "Oh man, I would love to just be able to train all day." And I said, "Would you like to pay your mortgage by training all day?" Do you know, I mean, there's just mm, no mm-hmm. Again, it's an, an amazing thing. I love it, and I feel so privileged and lucky to have done it, but at the same time it's fucking hard work.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you get asked all the time how these two worlds inform each other, how being an athlete makes you a better screenwriter vice versa, but I'm sure these worlds come into conflict also, and work at cross purposes with each other. When you're yep. on a deadline and you really want to get out and ride, yep. <laughs> you know, like what wins when those two worlds collide in that way?
0: Um, at the moment, I think because my life has been so much about training, that that you know, I'll just like not sleep and get up and get my three hours of yeah, I've read
1: like, you'll get up at two in the morning, <laughs> three in the morning, like if it's a busy <laughs> day, just shit. no matter what.
0: Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, you just
1: went to the Oscars, you're having this incredible moment right now where doors are opening up and you're probably getting offered all kinds of cool stuff to do. I know you just got back from London and did this fashion thing and you earned that. And it's okay to go do that. Like right. you've trained a lot. Like you right. can take a break. It's cool. Right. It's always there. So it's it's like, you know, this 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 moment will not visit you again and I'm sure you'll go on and have many more successes, but there's only one first. Yep. And there's something really special about that. Yep. And it would be tragic from my perspective if you like shunned those because you needed to be on your trainer. Oh,
0: totally. Yeah. Totally. And I think like I I to be honest, I wrestle with that a lot because I think to get to the level I have in sport, it's an addiction. Sure. It's it's not like I'm saying to you I'm just going to go train because I I I want to do well at a race or I want to be fit. No, it's an addiction. Yeah, so... you le-
1: <laughs> like like to put a exclamation point on this. I mean, you you so the film premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Yep. Twenty twenty fall of twenty twenty one. Yeah. Right? Is that right? And yeah. you like left the screening and like drove five hours to go compete in <laughs> the World X-Terra, Championship. World Championship. <laughs>
0: right. But you know what? I like that crazy shit. You know, uh-huh. it's also part of who I am and that's where my joy comes from. So I think it's like finding and I hate the word balance, but just assessing every every day like Where's the importance? And can I face, you know, this need to train and push that aside and focus on what's important? And I think that the balance will start to turn as we get more films going. And because really, truly, the only thing that takes me away from training in a way is the joy of the creativity. When we're collaborating, when we're on set, when I'm working through a problem and then I'm just in this place of wonderment about the world. So if I can kind of push aside those. The
1: the obsessiveness that you apply to sport is just transferred over to the joy and the love of solving a creative problem.
0: Totally, oh, it is. But at least I feel like that is more um, enhancing in my life Mm -hmm. because any story that we're doing, any project that we're a part of, it has some bigger purpose. I want the films and the stories I tell to- And it's forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You lay it down and it's for Mm -hmm. other people to see and to have an impact on. And those are the types of projects that we're choosing to do.
1: You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Balance.
0: <laughs>
1: you said none. when you have all these projects going on, then maybe you'll have more balance. And yeah. my head is going, No, <laughs> you, first of all, no, you won't. But secondly, that's still, presumes that you're in pursuit of balance. And I don't think that you are, I think you're somebody who has um, come to terms with yourself that balance is not for you or you feel alive in your unique extreme approach to your life, which is something I share and appreciate it. And and, and it took me a long time to not feel guilty about that. And to let go of trying to adhere to some imaginary social standard of what a balanced life should be and and look like. And you're an example of that and somebody who I know has thought a lot about that word balance and what it means.
0: Oh, yeah. And, And I hate it and I love it all at the same time. I think it means different things to different people. I think for me, it means sitting back and understanding maybe what's important or how to fuel your soul in a different way and not going down the rabbit hole of obsession to the point of it breaking you down which it has done in the past and it can continue to do sometimes um you know i kind of dig dig i push 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 and then i fall off a cliff mm-hmm. and that seems to be my rhythm in life right
1: right but that i think the trick or the jedi move is to is to not fall off the cliff so like I to push and know yourself well enough because you know, it's not a marathon, it's an ultra marathon. Right. And you got a lot going on and right. a big, bright future ahead. And you want to have that energy and enthusiasm 10, 20 years from now that you have today. And there's something unsustainable about that extreme, you know, kind of rigor of, of pushing yourself in that way. That, as somebody who's a little <laughs> who's older than you, I can tell yeah. you uh, at some point, you got to find a new way. Yeah, you know, right. a little bit of a new way while honoring that aspect of, right. of who you are.
0: And I think like my art helps me realize that because you're digging into different facets of society, different people, how they operate. And it's giving you that self reflective ability about what's important, what do you love? How do you address those inner demons? Like it's really helping. It's like your own form of therapy. Mm-hmm. So, And I know what's good for me and what can pull me back. Um, And we always do it. So, you know, for me it's definitely spending time with my family. I don't have children myself, and, and that's been something I've wrestled with. Like, do I do it or not? And so spending time with like nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters, like making the effort, even although you're like, I'm so busy, I can't do it, blah, blah you know, once you actually do it, you're like, oh my God, there's so much joy and happiness that comes from that. Mm-hmm. So, I think I know what you're talking, like I know where the edge of the cliff is and I know the things that kind of bring me back and they yeah. kind of center me.
1: Yeah, Your partnership with your husband is super interesting too because these, this is somebody that you met while out riding, you know, another kind of endurance enthusiast. Who also is he? A neuroscientist, also a psychologist. He's a psychologist.
0: PhD. Yep. PhD. So yep.
1: brain performance guy <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: turned like screenwriter, screenwriter producer. Like yeah. that's a that's like, like a cool. very interesting pivot, and in it's in its own right for him to kind of shift his attention, interest, and curiosity, you know, more in the direction of, of kind of where you were coming from and this collaboration that you have. That goes kind of uncredited on his part, it seems like. But you're always so certain far, to make sure now, that. Yeah, but now you have this
0: big production stuff. company yeah. and you've got all these
1: things going on. And
0: he's really, you know, headlining that with me. I think it, you know, again, it's an artifact of growing up in in the UK, right? Being British, you're on a track, You do your undergraduate, your graduate, your masters, your PhD, your postdoc. You get mm-hmm. your job, and that's what you're supposed to do. It's the social norm. And then you get there and you think, oh, fucking hell, I don't like it. Like, what the hell? And most people at that point, they're married, maybe they've had children, they have a lot of demands and they have a lot of fear to take a jump. And I've spent my life taking jumps. So when Simon got to that point in his career in academia where he was hating it, I said, babe, it up. He's like, tenure track position, what? But, you know, probably most other partners would have said, oh, but we've got the mortgage to pay or what about the pension or such a good job. Will you get anything again? It doesn't mean shit if you're not happy. So I've always been driven by that. So then he got out of it. And of course he spent his life writing, Mm -hmm. albeit academically writing, but he, you know, he's so creative. And then when you're a psychologist, it's all about subtext. Of people. So then writing characters for him just has been second nature. So we have this sort of amazing partnership now, where we come to the table with very different skill sets. I'm a lot more macro. I'm a lot more story structure, architecture, character development, concepts, all the stuff I was trained in at uni. Um, And then he's nitty gritty scenes getting in the world, you know, of the dialogue Mm -hmm. and he'll he'll just like jump in it. So we have, it's really wild after 20 years of marriage to just have so much, so much bloody fun. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like we're That's cool. yeah, we're like bebopping around, mm-hmm. and we've got a project set in Ghana. We just met the 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 king of Ashanti in London. Oh wow! Um, in what world, you know what I mean? And we're like, we both looked at each other last week when we we're meeting the king, and we're like, it's you know what?
1: Yeah. So. Well, it's it's a function of 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 cultivating and acting on that intuitive voice, right? You talked right. about your life being one of of taking these leaps, right? Mm-hmm. And you probably get um, more used to taking them the more that you take them, yes. right? And you know, because it's worked out, like right. that this is a good way for you to follow your heart. But what does that look like for you when you have to make a leap or a big decision? How are you checking in with yourself? How is that decision made? What part of your uh, process involves like what the head is telling you or the fears or the insecurities or are you just like, no, this is my, I need to do this. And even if it doesn't make sense on paper, this is mm. where I'm going.
0: My biggest fear in life is missing out. I have major formal so that I did not take an opportunity. I don't care if I fail, if I'm crap, if it doesn't pan out, if I have not taken that opportunity. So that's actually what gets me into trouble is to, you know, taking on too much, or you know, yeah, just always trying to, you know, be someone that is taking up every opportunity. You mm-hmm. know, I kind of get obsessive about that, right? So I don't right.
1: Have... You, like now, I'm sure you're shellacked with all kind. Like you yes. could, if you said yes to all the cool stuff people oh, are inviting fun. you to, you would never get yeah. anything done. And... No, totally.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> right, I've kind of, so. I'm not joking. I've kind of, yeah. you know, when I'm kind of at that point where I'm like, okay, now I need to say no. Now I need to like focus on the task at hand. But luckily again, I've had those skills, right? From sport. How do you refine your 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 process? How do you figure out where you want to go and what are the steps that are going to take you there? And I know where I want to go. So you have to always kind of check in with the steps that are going to get you there. Right. And sort of, I think a lot of the other the a lot of the other stuff is about ego and Sort of what makes you feel good or what's giving you a pat in the back or I just I have a lot of inherent confidence like I, I don't I don't I love being shit at stuff I know that sounds weird and silly but it, it means that therefore I can jump in and figure out how to get better at it and the pursuit of that is where I find my meaning and where I find my joy yeah
1: that's so important to have that beginner's mind and to not get caught up in the perception of failure, because then you're jumping into all different kinds of things all the time and doing right. it for the joy and the learning experience of it, rather than you know how people are gonna perceive you if you don't do it perfectly. Right. Um, yeah. I'm curious where that comes from, because I think that's hard rot for a lot of people, mm-hmm. They don't want to try new things. It's just easier to keep doing the thing that you're pretty good at, or that people kind of socially approve you for.
0: I think it's the 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 love of suffering, (laughs) and you can you know Mm -hmm. sort of assess that any which way you will. And interestingly, you know, I've been digging into Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning for another project, and. I seek that, I seek the suffering. And again, I don't know if that's that Calvinistic, you know, the deficit model. You can't truly have joy if you haven't had pain. And absolutely, that has been my mantra for life. So, I always seek the pain, whatever that looks like. Mm. Uh, Yeah, whether that's physical, whether that's mental, and I don't mind if that comes with not being good at something.
1: Do you feel when you're writing a screenplay that if you haven't bled on the page that you haven't given it everything that you have? Like, is there a way to create with ease or do you think the best artistic expression that you're capable of requires the level of suffering and pain that is demanded from endurance sports?
0: I think that, I guess I don't observe it like that. Something is, is... Is good or it's not, or you have a sense that it's good or it's not, or it's going to make headway or it's not. Um, every single script is incredibly difficult to write because we want our our scripts to be layered with a lot of depth, which involves deep, deep thought on every single mm-hmm. level. Um, whether that's the impact, you know, what do you want the audience to feel? when they walk out of the movie theater or, you know, off their phone or however they watch it. And to to create that feeling in an audience member takes so much intricate, you know, putting together of these puzzles. It's like a mathematical problem uh, to figure it out. So some scripts are definitely easier to write than others and they just kind of come out. But even, even if they kind of come out, they go through so many different iterations, mm-hmm. you know, along the way, once you get feedback from your mentors, once you get a director on board, once you get an actor on board, it's gonna go through all these iterations and 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 that's the beauty of it. You layer it and layer it and layer it. So the really truly great films, you know, have this collaboration of all of these wonderful minds. And if you open yourself up to that, that's where the, the, the beauty of it comes. Mm-hmm.
1: The best idea wins. Right. And the best ideas in a layered sense are conveyed cinematically with great intentionality but also incredible efficiency, you know, so that right. they become almost the backdrop so An example yeah. of that in my mind would be in all quiet on the Western front, the recycling of the uniforms that we were introduced right. to in the beginning, like it barely, it's not even really, you know, in the forefront of what's right. actually happening, um, but just the process of seeing that says so much about what's actually happening. It's, it's, it's the, the entire theme of the movie is built into that <laughs> right. sequence, right? right? So it's a genius device that happens, you know, in a matter of seconds, right. that's incredibly profound and, and, and stays with you. And so that's not something like the, however that idea came about, Um, is not something you could will into being. It's almost like a gift from the beyond, right? To discover, to have that discovery and then translate that onto a page and ultimately onto film.
0: And I guess that's about preparing, preparing, preparing so that you can let it go and have it come to and you. And then it
1: allows itself it, to express. Yeah. And I'm sure it comes to you when you're training, right? Totally. That's the totally. other thing. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, cause then you're in that space of that. There's something about the breath and the elevated heart rate that creates vacancy or space in your mind for yep. that inspiration to come. Totally. Uh, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to imagine you, cause I know what I do when you're out and you're in the middle of a session and you have, something like that hits, yep. how do you capture that? Because I know what it's like to say, I got it. And then at the end of the session, I've forgotten totally. the idea. Do you stop and write it down in a note? Do you record a voice memo? Do you just repeat it to yourself so you don't forget it?
0: Sometimes, sometimes it's just a feeling. So it might not be as concrete as a natural idea. So sometimes it's just a sense of something. And then I percolate that sense and then come up with an idea. So maybe I'll use a whole run. I get a sense of something and then I start to like bounce around. Okay, what about this? What about that? Well, I need to do this, but what about? It? And it just evolves mm. and I let it evolve. And then once it's done that, then I'll kind of, okay. Oh my God. <laughs> a pull over in the car <laughs> no, or whatever. It. <laughs> um, you know, or I'll be, you know, in the middle of a gym workout or I'll be up the side of a mountain, you know, calling Simon, I'm a- you know, mm. um, yeah, so it's, it's again, sort of preparing your mind enough to be able to let it go. Mm-hmm. And that means watching a lot, reading a lot, understanding what you need out of a scene, like an opening scene, for example, is so important. You know, it captures, as you said, the, the, the essence, the thematic essence of what you're trying to say in this film. So, it's very, very important you want to do it in a way that isn't what we call on the nose. You're not directly saying it, you're indirectly saying it. But then you've got the parameters of the story that you're telling. So for All Quiet, for example, we knew we wanted to start in the battlefield because it was really important to give the audience a sense of, this is the world that you're going to be a part of for the next, you know, two and a half hours. But our main character, Paul, we needed them still to be at home, Mm -hmm. to be caught up in the patriotic verve. That was a really important part of the story. So you're like, okay, so we need to start out in the battlefield, but then we need to track and come back home. How do we do that? You know, so you start to put all of these kind of pieces together and then bit by bit, you know, you figure it out. And interestingly, I figured that piece out because I just watched Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sequence in there with a girl with a red coat, Right. where the whole film is in black and white and there's this girl in this red coat and you see her, you know, sort of walking around. And then of course you see her body in this red corner. It was so beautiful and heart-wrenching. And that's, you know, so right. I, I watch a lot, I read a lot, I think about those parameters and then boom, something will come. Mm-hmm. And then you build on that, right? So for example, uh, Ed, our director, Edward Berger, uh, he's a co-writer uh, on the script also. He elevated it even more by at the end of the sequence where you follow the uniform back, um, and uh, uh, the tag is taken off. The tag is dropped on the ground along with loads of other uh, pilot other tags months. that yeah. wasn't in uh, that you know that wasn't in our original script. So all the time you're getting these concepts elevated by both the scriptwriter, the co-scriptwriters, mm-hmm. the director. Then you've got the music. Then you've got the cinematography. All these layers of meaning, which just add up. And it's the same as sport. All of these different layers that you're building on. You know, to create this performance mm. and to create this film. So it just makes sense in my head mm-hmm. how one helps the other. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating and, and inspiring. Um, but we haven't even gotten to the really compelling you know, aspect of this story, uh, which is the grit and the perseverance and the Ooh. determination and the patience that you demonstrated to birth this project to the screen. So, in the timeline of your life, we're only at rugby (laughs) and (laughs) ballet. Come Uh, on, Rich. uh, We don't have nine hours, we have plenty of time. But basically, you get into running, fell running after that, you find your way via your dad into triathlon, you have a lot of success um, pretty quickly out of the gate as a triathlete, you pursue it in college. uh, And despite your success, you realize like you're just not gonna, you're just kind of a rung shy of the Commonwealth Games slash Olympic team caliber. In this ITU world of draft legal and where you have to be, you know, really fast as a swimmer, which is not your main thing, um, which disheartens you from the sport, and you ultimately—I mm-hmm. don't know why I'm telling your story. You should be telling it, but I'm trying to get to the good
2: part. <laughs> get to part. You know, yeah. this
1: leads you to kind of step back from sport for a while. You come out to San Diego with Simon. Um, am I on the timeline right? And you, you get your masters in theater, and you're going to pursue do. this career in the arts, right. initially as an actor.
0: Right, which was bananas. Mm. And again, that was like, you know, facing your fears on this, you know, we girl from Scotland and all of a sudden you're in Hollywood doing additions for directors, albeit, you know, for small films and student films and so on. Um, But I had so much joy in that period of my life because I was so disappointed at being a failure in sport, or at least not feeling like it wasn't even about realizing my potential. It's that I'd lost my passion. So again, I'll come back to sort of finding joy in, in the process of what I'm doing and the mastery of the craft. And I'd lost that with triathlon because I'd been funneled down a path that didn't suit me into a sport that didn't suit me, that I didn't find joy in. And I didn't think there was any other way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I came out to California and got into the arts again that I rekindled. Oh my God, I'm really passionate about this. Oh my God, I really love it. I'm so excited. I can't sleep because I just want to get up and do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and- And what
1: a gift because- yeah. Most athletes upon retirement i mean let 's face it you know it 's only the the rare few that make it to the olympic team it 's interesting right. that you characterized that aspect of your career as a failure. You did great, you just weren't going to go to that next level right. that very few get to right so I would consider that a success, but that aside um, in retirement it 's very rare for that individual to recapture the passion that they had in sport in some other field.
0: Right. And it's super fascinating when you look at athletes and how many suffer from deep depression, yeah. anxiety, there's a lot of, you know, high suicide rates post athletic career because you've had such focus, because you've had such drive and you know and then you've lost that, you know, where's your purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've always kindled these two separate pieces of my life that have given me equal joy in different ways and never let any one of them go. And anytime I do let one go too much or one is elevated too much, I actually kinda like don't become a good person in a way. Like I'm very, very challenged. I need to keep some semblance of both going oh, at all times.
2: Yeah.
0: Um and yeah, so I think coming back to studying a master's, being in a different world, getting to sort of, you know, reinvent myself in California, um, do crazy shit, acting like, you know, horror films get eaten in half by a chupacabra. yeah, did you do
1: some like slasher stuff? Oh my
0: God, Rich, buddy. (laughs) Can we find that? Yes, you can, it's super embarrassing. Like Roger Corman type stuff? But it's it's like, you know, naff American accent, Uh you know, like stupid blonde girl giggling, you know. I even at one point had to, yeah, I had to imagine getting eaten in half. And I was like tied up and I had to like give this big scream. And I'm thinking, God, I had but you know, it was, it was just, it was so fun. It was so ridiculous. It mm-hmm. was fun. I felt like I was living in a movie, you know, literally. Um, yeah. And then just the relationships I developed through that, you know, I felt like it was fueling my soul because the pursuit of endurance sport can be a very sort of myopic thing. It's, you know, you become very self-centered mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of numb Emotionally, um, and this just opened my world up again. Mm. Mm. I, and that's what I mean by if one takes off too much, then I'm mm-hmm. in trouble. Mm-hmm. Because if I become too ethereal, too emotional, I don't. I lack the discipline. If I become too, you know, obsessive, compulsive, sports-like structure, 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 I lose my sense of soul and being. So it's like I always have to have bits of bits of both, but. Right. um Yeah, so then I think by finding myself again, by finding passion again, I then started, I I vowed I would never do another triathlon again, no joke. When I came to California, I'm like, I'm not doing that fucking sport, it's really stupid, it's really crazy, what the hell? I was like watching a couple of buddies race and I'm like, who are those idiots? Flash forward, you know, You're in San Diego,
1: which is like the Mecca of all of Of this, right? Were you in the North (laughs) County or were you like in the city down? I was in
0: the sinful south. Yeah, yeah. It's like nobody from the north goes, you know, no, further but all south than the All area. the
1: triathlon geeks live up in the north. Yeah. yeah oh
0: north they coast. do. They do. And once you're accepted in that, you know, clique, then, you know, whew, mm-hmm. you rise to lofty heights. But um yeah, so it was like, I was in this place, it was known for triathlon and I wasn't doing it, but then I kind of got the bug again and I got into cross country running and I started to meet some really cool people and I was just like really ambivalent about it, really just getting back to enjoying it and being fit again and what that felt like. And then I found Xterra, which is all off-road triathlon. I was like, oh my God, this is like rugby plus triathlon equals Xterra. This right. is amazing. So, and I I felt those butterflies in my stomach, like, oh my God. And I was like, I'm I'm gonna give this a shot. And and that was kind of it. I did my first one. And I remember I was racing against McKaylee Jones and a bunch of other big names. I was right up there and I'm like,
1: I think I've just won my sport. Was that the one, that you you went back to Scotland and you just jumped in on a race and won it or something like Yay. that or did that that or was that the lightning bolt that was moment lightning that bolt. told you oh this world of XTERRA is yes. like where i should be yeah yeah, was yeah. and that then was you it. came back and you know you just start absolutely <laughs> you know, like crushing it in, and you win three <laughs> world titles in XTERRA, right, right. like 2011, 12 and 18. Right. Yeah. Um, and then two other world championships yep. in like off. I don't even know what that is, like yeah, it's off-road. Cross triathlon. It's what just is the that? two different
0: governing bodies. So ITU mm-hmm. has its own off-road triathlon governing body called ITU cross triathlon. Right. So they have their own events. So it's like just two different governing bodies. So yeah, that has been a crazy ride, man. That's been a crazy ride.
1: Simultaneously, you make this decision. When was it 2006, 2008? That you are going to option this book written in 1929 Right. called All Quiet on the Western Front that we all read in school. Mm -hmm. A lot of us of my generation saw the 1979 TV movie. There's the 1930 movie that won the Oscar, right? right? This is not a hot property for some reason you decide to aim your focus on this project. So let's start with what struck you about this book and convinced you that this was worthy of your investment of mm-hmm. not only time and energy, but
0: a lot of significant
1: resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A
0: lot of, a lot of moolah. Um, so it was interesting. So as I got into uh, the film world and I was acting, I met my co-writer on this project, Ian Stokel. And we teamed up, and he said, "Listen, Les, if you want to be an actor, you really have to write and produce your own stuff. If you know you want to go far enough, because then you have some kind of control over what you're doing." And that really made sense to me. Again, mm-hmm. thinking outside the box about how to Especially achieve. Especially since there's
1: such a strong female lead in *All Quiet in the Western Front*.
0: <laughs> Hey man, we had a whole other story <laughs> okay, that had a great yeah. few more. I can't imagine I can how many drafts oh. there were
1: of this project over Brutal. 16 years, but go ahead.
0: Oh, And so, well, so then we started writing scripts together because I had not written before and I was learning the craft and, and kind of enjoying it. And then we were both reading this book and I don't know what possessed us, but, we wondered who had the rights to the book, because here's the thing when you're a writer or a producer and you're very much on the outside, you don't really have connections, you don't have an agent, you don't, none of that. You have to do something that's gonna set yourself apart. And certainly in this industry now, it's all about intellectual property, Mm -hmm. IP. If you have some kind of IP, that's a worth, that's something that's gonna set you apart uh, from everyone else knocking on doors. So, we were reading this book. It was like a sale at Barnes and Noble and Ian's like, gosh, I wonder who has the rights. And we both love war films. I mean, I love Saving Private Ryan. I love Apocalypse Now. These are all films I watch and watch and watch and watch because it's such war films, like they're this amazing canvas at its most extreme to really investigate character. Mm-hmm. And so World War I at that time had really not been done. and it's. There's so much tragedy but so much beauty. It's like this alien landscape that visually is so arresting that I was I was absolutely drawn to that like gosh, we need a modern retelling of this story. So we went about, you know, going to the estate of the author
1: well, first of all, you would yes. assume that some studio has it tied totally. up just for the purpose yep. of not letting anyone else make Correct. it. Correct. Yeah.
0: And as much as it, it didn't seem like a big title, that's a big title, everybody knows about it. If, if If it has that kind of recollection, that means it's worth something. So, Universal had just let it lapse. So, we jumped in, we made a bid, we pleaded our case, we said, this is how we wanna do it. And they said, okay, (laughs) we're like, what the hell? So that was like, oh my God, we've made it.
1: Right, and just for people who are listening or watching who don't understand what that means, as a former entertainment lawyer who did a million option agreements, you are purchasing an option on the property, which means you are paying for the exclusive right within a given period of time to buy the book to make the movie. The option is a relatively nominal fee in comparison to the purchase price. It's basically saying no one else can buy this during this period of time except right. us. And for that right, we will pay you X. And in your case, it was like 15 to 20 grand a year. Was it where you were doing yearly annual Renewals on
0: it? it, Sometimes it was 12 months, sometimes it was 18. Right. And it was about 10,000 to Mm -hmm. 15,000, which, you know, seems nominal to a big studio, which it is, but to your everyday, you know, husband's an academic, earning not very much, you're a professional triathlete, like what? Um, It was a lot of money. That was a lot of Uh, money. Yeah. Yeah,
1: You're you're a student, you're right out, this is during school or right when you got out of?
0: went Your master's right when program? Out, Yeah, and right. I was just... Um, yeah, I think so I who's
1: got 10, 15 grand nothing, lying around I mean, to have to just no. say I have the right to shop this thing? And oh, right totally. To-
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, shit, I was working right. at a bike shop for minimum wage, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, but there was something about it that, and, and, and really Ian taught me this, is you have to take risks, you have to take a gamble, you have to go for something if you really believe in it. And so we thought, well, why not? Just give it a go. You know, if this is what's gonna set us apart and give us a step up on the ladder. And uh, yeah, that was what we thought. And as soon mm-hmm. as we got it, I remember signing the paper, we faxed it. <laughs> Would you believe that's how long ago it was? I remember getting the fax through and being like, oh my God. And uh, yeah, we thought that's it, we've made it, mm. you know? And then of course you have to adapt the fucking thing, right. which by the way, is incredibly difficult. Um, Because when you're taking a text like that, that was written so long ago, you know, it certainly wasn't written cinematically. I mean, it's beautiful, it's poetic, thematically, Mm -hmm. there's so much there, but it's like excerpts of a diary. And that's what, you know, as a screenplay writer, you're looking for some kind of direction, some kind of structure to hang it on, some kind of narrative through line. So that still respects the the essence of the book. How do you do that? So that took multiple drafts.
1: Do you go back and watch the 1979 version, the 1931, or do you avoid those? Like you wanna learn, like from just a curiosity forensic perspective, like how did they structure it? And watching that after being so familiar with the book, you would get a sense of how they figured out what to focus on to create a narrative out of this series of diary entries?
0: So we watched everything and anything. We read everything and anything that we could. We did as much research as we could. And then looking at the current landscape of film, uh, what audiences respond to, what did we feel was important? How were we going to elevate this? Because one of the biggest questions was always going to be, well, why do this again? Why is it important? Why now? And that's a question that we come back to in all of our projects. Why is this relevant now? And if you can't answer that and answer it authentically and effectively, then don't do it.
1: What was your answer to that then? I know the answer now.
0: Yep. So then it was really about the betrayal of a youthful generation because that for me rung true because I'm Scottish, I'm of that underdog mentality where you're fighting against what you deem to be that upper brass. So I could really relate to being manipulated by something up here. So I love that aspect of it. So betrayal felt really potent and that's mm. something that we, we dug into right from the get go. And then for us, like I'm really fascinated by history in general, but, but also how we manipulate history depending on which side you're on. So once we dug into things like the reparations that Germany had to pay after World War One, the signing of the armistice, all of these different aspects of the story, it was fascinating. I'm like, we are not taught any of this. And of course the book was written when World War Two had not occurred. Mm-hmm. So, how to update it is to give it some kind of historical context that gives you an understanding of how World War I caused World War II, which I think is really critical in understanding how do we prevent things in the future? What does this mean? How can we teach our audience in some way about what the future can hold? Sure.
1: Yeah. I'm super proud to announce Yeah, I'm wondering whether that pitch at that time was sufficient enough to convince anyone to say, yes, we're doing this. Because when I think about the moment when the movie came out, it seemed to make so much more sense. It was very current and relatable in the context of what was happening in the Ukraine. And it was constructed on the shoulders of a couple developments in Hollywood that suddenly made the movie make sense. The first being the the explosion of streaming, Mm -hmm. which created more outlets for production and distribution. The um, acceptance of foreign language cinema as, as a mainstream art by dint of movies like Parasite. Uh, And then thirdly, the success of 1917, of course, right? Which opened up the oh, these movies work. People do care about this period of time. None of which you could have scripted or imagined. They came about Um, in the process, this 16 year journey that you went on to like get this movie made. But in 8, when you're trying to get this thing up on its feet and you're knocking on doors, what is the response that you're getting? I mean, were you going in thinking, of course they're gonna wanna make this movie. Everybody knows this book, right?
0: (laughs) Totally. Well, like our classic saying, we should have gotten t-shirts. Well, why wouldn't they? Mm. (laughs) That was, why wouldn't they? you know, I think there were still some World War I movies coming out, you know, that we thought like a very long engagement and things like that, that we thought, well, you know, maybe we've got a chance. And we knew that it was just about finding the right person at the right time. And... Film is a weird one. It's just, it's all about timing and you can't predict when that timing is gonna happen. You just have to straight, stay true to your intention mm-hmm. and why it's important to tell why you feel it is. And then that's gonna keep you going. And so our path took us down crazy journeys. So like at the start of this, we thought we were gonna do it as English language with German accents because 16 years ago, you could not have raised Yeah, fairness. you
1: couldn't do it in, uh, in, German, in German language. Yeah. No
0: way. So we're like, okay. Then you start looking at the the business side of it and you say, to get a film off the ground, you need either a big director. So we went to a lot of big German directors who all turned it down. You know, a lot of German directors were scared of the material.
1: Yeah, like uh, there's, yeah. there's not a lot of upside in touching mm-mm, that material.
0: Unless yeah. you get it exactly right, which, you know, I believe Ed did. Um, but he was so passionate. He knew his vision right from the get go, what he wanted to do. Um, and we hadn't found that. And then it was okay, so we try and get a big cast member, right? That's gonna fund the film. No, it's not. So um, we went to Daniel Radcliffe. This was way back at the start, which was kind of bananas. We managed to reach out to him and we got a meeting with him and we flew overnight, eh, because we couldn't afford a hotel and he was living in New York. We're like, okay, we'll get a cheap flight overnight. We rock up to his apartment, thinking, is he gonna like, is this really happening? Uh-huh. Um, You know, we chat on the door and he flipping answers. Harry Potter answers the door. We're like, <laughs> what's going on? Uh-huh. So we rock into his apartment, he's getting us cups of tea, his parents are in the back. Mom, dad, stay back there. We're like, oh my God, it's Harry Potter. <laughs>
1: And was he's this like, around like his Ekis yeah, phase? He
0: was massive. Yeah, he was on
1: Broadway then. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: exactly. And he has a big apartment in mm-hmm. New York. And so he was like, I love your guy's script. That's it, I wanna come on board. We're like, oh my God. So my claim to fame is that, you know, I dropped one in Harry Potter's toilet. Yeah. So that's. That was a. Pinnacle. you know, that
1: scene in the biopic stays in. That's right, yeah. exactly.
0: Um, um, but um, you guys
1: didn't have any money, right? Like, what was. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Mm-hmm.
0: So, but then you realize you have to learn the business. Like, what? How do you put a film together? How does that work? And we quickly realized that Daniel Radcliffe was not going to get it off the ground because outside of Harry Potter, it wasn't worth anything. Um, And then of course his agency didn't want him attached to something that wasn't getting made. So then he came off it. So you're learning all of this about the business as you go on and you're Mm -hmm. trying to sort of strategize and how do we knock on those doors? How do we get those attachments? How do we this, how do we that? We got different producers on board, one of which went to jail. Um, I mean, you couldn't,
1: Right. But, but you honestly, haven't really paid your dues in Hollywood trying to get a movie made unless one of your producers goes to jail at some point. Totally. Right, so, embezzlement or something like yep, that. It yeah. was,
0: Belgium Belgium <laughs> embezzlement. <laughs> right. um, uh, from some
1: insurance fund or something. Totally, yeah. <laughs>
0: totally, You're like, oh man. And uh-huh. then we've just, we've just had some crazy meetings, you know, like I remember going in to meet this producer and I kid you not when I say his office, he had a stage and he had a throne on a stage and that was like, I'm not joking. What? That was like his office.
1: Are you going to name names?
0: You know? I can't even remember who it was. It was that long ago. And then we've met other directors, you know, where you're walking in. I remember this one director. And, and I remember walking in, and his assistant went, and this is, you know, and pronounced the name. And I'm thinking, what? Anyway, oh my so. Oh, God. That but you know, you have yeah. to kind of see each experience as something in and of itself. And even if the film doesn't get made, we never would have had those kind of opportunities. Right. You're learning as you
1: go about yeah. how things actually work. Right. And you were doing that without representation? Yep. Did you have you didn't have mm-hmm. an agency mm-hmm. yeah, opening any of those mm-hmm. doors for you? And ticking clock, much like the armistice in the background of All Quiet, totally. you have the ticking clock of the option. You have right. gotta come up with this money every oh 12 God. to 18 months. And the way to do that is to win world championships. Right. So while you're pursuing this movie, you're like training six, seven hours a day yep. and then showing up and crushing it. There's two stories that I want you to tell from this period. Um, the first is, is when you went to the, I think it was, which one was it? Was it the Costa 2000, Rica? no, it was the 2011 XTERRA in Maui. World
0: Championships, yeah. Yeah, my first world title. Yeah, so, that, so that, there's yeah.
1: that story and then obviously there's the Costa Rica story, but start, okay. let's start with Maui. Start with Maui. Yeah. I
0: think the reason that that's so important is that it, it, it changed the course of my life. Because when you've been in pursuit of something like winning a world title or being the best in the world or an Olympic title, whatever that is, and you're faced with incredible odds and then you overcome that because you just keep going, it changes everything about what you have to do if you want to succeed at something. So at it, 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 that specific race, I came out of the water in pole position. I was the fittest I'd ever been. I was like, oh my God, today's it. Today is the day and you don't get that feeling often where all the stars are aligning. And I got on my bike and I rolled out of transition and I had a flat tire. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I've never had a flat tire in a race before. Like what? And so everyone's passing me and I just remember this moment thinking, I can either throw in the towel and just like succumb, woe me, never meant to be, or I can say, you know what? I'm going to fight because I'm fit. I'm in a beautiful place. Like, why not? Why not? Like, you know, at least I'll get a workout in and then I can have some, you know, friggin' ice cream and not feel guilty about it. So um, I, I fix a puncture and I bike and I just keep going and I make it up into fourth position on the bike but I am 10 minutes down on the leader with only, sorry, six minutes So you minutes changed
1: down. the flat, you didn't ride on so a flat.
0: I changed the flat, so it was, what happened was the tire pressure was so low on a, sometimes on mountain biking, in order to get traction, you have low you tire pressure. You want it pressure. low, yeah. So it was too low, mm. so it, it burped the tire, so I then had to get my canister and pop it so that it popped. Not that I knew that at the mm-hmm. time, but after a few stop and goes and figuring it out, I realized that what it, that's what it was. I, I heard a pop and I'm, oh my God, I'm on my way. So I cycle, I just keep on going, I'm feeling great. And I'm like, well, fuck it. And I cycle up to fourth, but I'm, I think it was six and a half minutes down um, on the leader with a 10K to go. And I'm like, well, effort and attitude, just give it everything you have. And I climb my way back up to second. I remember being at the top of the hill on the specific course and I saw a helicopter come over. I'm like, holy shit, that means the leader is really close. So I'm barreling down this hill and I see the leader, Melanie McQuaid in front of me and she's stumbling around. I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna pass her. So I pass her with literally, I think, I don't know, it was maybe a K to go, half mm-hmm. a mile to go or something like that and she ends up collapsing and not finishing the race. And I just remember like Simon's face, he's like wigging out, he's so happy. And I just thought I could have given up. I could have not bothered, I could have thrown in the towel. And that really just, it changed everything for me to just Mm. keep going.
1: Mm. So three pieces of information you left out, which is first of all, that prize money allowed you to extend the option. Yep. Yes, ten
2: thousand uh, bucks I think it was.
1: Secondly, you ra- you ran forty three fifty four, uh, which was the same as the men's winner, Michael Weiss. Yep. Who is like elite? Like that guy is a you know a beast, right? So you yep. ran just as fast as the men's winner. And for context your run split was 10 minutes faster than Lance Armstrong who was competing in that race.
0: Yeah, screw it, Lance. How's, how's about them apples, <laughs> right. buddy? I'll it's take like, you on.
1: Uh, that's unbelievable. And that yeah. was, the fir- was that the first XTERRA World Championship that you'd competed in?
0: No, it was not. It was competed okay. in others. That was maybe mm. my third.
1: That was the first that you third. won. That
0: was the first that I'd won. Yeah, okay. Yep, yep, yep.
1: Um, you go on to you know win a bunch of races. Uh, you won in 2012, also, but then you have this. When does the the Lyme disease situation kick in. kick in?
0: So it was really interesting. That was like 2013. So 2012, when I won for the second time, it it's interesting because any athlete will tell you the first time is elation but it's quickly followed by the doubt in Thomas's where I don't deserve this, I'm not really that good. You know, it was all questionable, Melanie McQuaid had collapsed, can I do it again? And I went through a period of just like, oh my God, I'm not that good. And I quickly brought on my husband and we figured out how do I you know, get better. How do I make this happen again? Mm-hmm. So 2012, I starts think- It
1: starts with not getting a flat. That starts with not, but yeah. it
0: starts with your essence of like why you're doing it, like the beauty of it, like what's important to you. And I remember that summer, the thing that got me ready for 2012 was my training buddies. I had the best partners in the world and we had this wonderful friendship and I had so much joy in my training. And that took me to this world, uh, the second world title. And that was the best race in my life, no doubt about it that was that uh, to this day mm. every single piece of it was perfect every piece and my dad was there watching and he was not there in 2011
1: did he give it up for you
0: he did, he did. man he got i'm so, glad you got it he got you so, got it from him he got so pissed that <laughs> night it was amazing and anytime my dad gets pissed as and drunk you know i always ask him for money cuz he'll give me everything mm. <laughs> so i'm like all right pops give me the money for the option um no but uh, yeah so that was 2012 and then after that i think I just kind of dug myself a hole. You know, when you've you've found this moment where you've achieved what you deem to be real greatness and then you're searching for it again it takes you down some dark paths of that obsessive personality so um. I lost a lot of weight I just like really compromised my immune system and then um, all of these symptoms started to arise and that's when I realised I had chronic Lyme's disease and that set me on this path that was awful. Um, Yeah, so I went from being the best in the world and getting the fastest runtime split to, oh, now you're in bed and you can't get out and you're Mm. in chronic pain. So the leveling of that, I think that's where now dealing with failure, I couldn't give a toss because having gone from the highest highs to lowest lows, you have so much gratitude for being able to do anything that you don't care whether it's good or it's bad, you just Mm. wanna be doing it.
1: How long were you bedridden? Like what was that discovery and recovery process like?
0: Um, Years, really. It was years and I never really got over it Um, because with Lyme's disease, it's really curious because your body cannot fight it off because there's many other things going on. So you have to figure out all of the different things going on in your system that has created this perfect storm for you not to be able to recover from it. And that's when I embarked on my, what we call my investigative health hustle, which is I'm gonna stop at nothing to figure out what's going on. So I spoke to every doctor, every therapist, went all over the world. Um, And at that time I was also suffering from chronic pain, chronic pelvic pain, which meant I couldn't sit down. I could only lie down. I couldn't drive anywhere. I had to have someone drive me to places. All the while I'm still trying to compete. I'm still trying Mm. to speak to sponsors to get money.
1: So you're trying to grit and train your way Mm -hmm. through it.
0: Oh, it was awful. And was was the
1: pelvic pain related to the Lyme disease or that was a separate thing?
0: No, it was kind of related. It was understanding kind of what my body was dealing with. Mm -hmm. It was exposed to a lot of toxicity. It was exposed to mold toxicity and some heavy metals and various other things. I had a lot of gut problems. I'd had a lot of antibiotics, a lot of sugars, a lot of, I mean, my body was a mess, right? It was just a mess and um, and that all led to this kind of chronic inflammation and certainly, if you experience mold toxicity, which you know is relatively unknown, pelvic pain is one of the the major symptoms because the pulling of the toxicity, the mycotoxins from the mold, they actually pull in your urethra in your kind of around your urine and around that bowl, that pelvic bowl, where all those nerve ends are so I had both. Um biomechanical issues that were creating like high hamstring tendinopathy. Uh-huh. But then at the same time, this chronic neur- neural inflammation in this area caused by mold. I mean, how would I ever have known any of that? Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm wondering how you even came to that diagnosis with <sighs> pelvic pain being the primary symptomology. I mean, mold would not be on nope. the list of the top 100 causal. Nope.
0: Well, it took me, eight and a half years to get to that point. So it was eight and a half years of chronic pain. And at some points, so debilitating, I'd go to bed at night crying and wake up wishing that it it would be okay in the morning. So, you know, um, and once I got to the point and I've only been out of pain for about a year and a half. Wow which is wild and and, in fact, uh, my last outing, I went, I have this butt pad, everyone knows me, it's really funny, I have this like, it's totally minging as in like grotty, foamy thing that I have to sit on anytime I go anywhere. And it was this running joke, are you gonna take it to the Oscars? You know, you're gonna be in a red carpet, who's gonna be holding your butt pads? (laughs) You know, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And uh, I think it was two weeks ago, I went out on a day of meetings in, in, in London, And uh, I went without my butt pad Mm. and I sat on hard chairs and I sat in the tube and there was no issues. So it's just amazing that like you deal with all this adversity and the gratitude that comes out of the simple things like sitting on a chair. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And the, the healing, the recovery from the mold and the lime. what did that entail? Like once it was diagnosed and you were on a certain protocol towards getting better, what did that mean?
0: It's ongoing because once you've experienced such toxicity uh, and so many issues in your body, it's like peeling back layers of the onion to figure out how to get over it. And it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you work with any, what we call functional medicine doctors, root cause medicine doctors, you know, you're paying out of pocket largely and it's thousands. I mean, just to get tested is thousands, let alone the treatment. And then, okay, so you're exposed to mold. Well, most houses have mold in them, you know, and then you have a genetic component, which means that if you have this specific gene, you're more susceptible to being impacted by it. So not everyone is. So how do you explain that to people? You know, then you're renting an apartment that has mold somewhere. How do you test for it? It's like 10,000 bucks. Then, okay, you find you've got mold in your house. How do you remediate it? That's, I don't know, 25 grand. Mm. So, do you know what I mean? It's like all of these, it's a very frustrating process, but at least the knowledge and the awareness of what's going on helps you deal with the symptomology that you're going through. Right,
1: right, right. Wow, I didn't realize it was that severe, acute, and Mm -hmm. and prolonged.
0: Oh yeah, and it can cause extreme, if you're if you're exposed to it chronically, um and again it's like this perfect storm, there's other stuff going on in your system, um, then you know, various symptoms, anxiety, panic attacks, depression can be huge, huge factors. So and Simon being the scientist that he is, he was quite um He didn't really believe in it, I guess I would say. And then we realized that we were both working beside a unit in our old house that once we ripped it out, it had black mold everywhere. Mm. And he was suffering from, you know, pretty extreme anxiety. that had gotten worse and worse and worse. So there's, it's just... Gosh, I mean, we could go. You right, <laughs>
1: could go down that whole. That's like a whole that's podcast a whole, in of itself. Oh like you spent hours on that. That's I'm right. sure when you move now, the first thing you're doing is like doing the mold analysis before oh, you. Totally. Even <laughs> it's
0: like, right. oh, for God's sake! Wow. So,
1: so, so during this period, so this the onset of this is 2013 around. Yep. Yeah. So while this is going on, you're like three years into this, right? Um, still trying to. Train, still trying to keep the option alive, the dream alive, right. trying to function in the world. And in was it 2015 or 2016? You go to Costa Rica to compete in this race, broke, desperate for the win because the option lapse is on the horizon, and there's just no um, negotiation here. Like you yep. need that money.
0: Totally. And I'd just come off the back of a lot of illness. So I was coming back to racing. So I had that fire in the belly to wanna do well. And you were on an the, upswing health I was wise. on an upswing and yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna go out to this race. I'm gonna win it. Uh, I'm feeling great. Training has for the first time in a long time gone really well. And the day before the races an off-road triathlon, you recce the course, right? You check out where are the little descents, where are the rocks, all that good stuff. So I go out on a pre-ride like the day before and I fall off my bike. And I'm like, wow, that really hurt. Come to find out, I've broken my shoulder. Did not know that then. All I knew is I could not lift up my arm. And uh, I was like, I was devastated. You know, lots of tears, lots of, oh my God, not only are we gonna lose the option because this is our only way to pay it.
1: And like through this whole health journey, you finally have a (laughs) glimpse of feeling okay (laughs) enough to race.
0: And I'm just like, what? Mm. So I quickly went out on the bike and I kind of propped up my hand and I'm like, well, you know what? I can hold on with my right and I can probably steer. The course isn't very technical. Maybe I can ride my bike. Running, that was actually okay because of where I broke my shoulder. The up and down motion was actually okay. Mm. Then I was like, went down to the water's edge with Simon. I'm like, can I swim? Could not lift up my arm. I mean, not one iota. I couldn't put a bobble on, couldn't get my brown. I was like-
1: A bobble, uh, what's a bobble? <laughs> a
0: bobble? A bobble <laughs> uh, for your, you know, like a wee- Oh, a wee, like a hair a tie? Hair tie, right. it's a bobble. Got
1: it, I don't God, know. God, Rich. Yeah. Trying to cut through the Scottish. Cut through the Scottish,
0: you know. Um, So I go down the water's edge, and Simon looks at me and he's like, Well, you know, you're really good at the one arm drill. I'm like, You know, he's right, because I spent so much time when I was younger trying to figure out how to swim that we do a bunch of drills. I was really good at one arm drill. So I go in the water and I'm like, Well, I can kind of get, maybe. And I thought, well, what's, what's the worst that can happen? You start the race, you go out 50 meters and you come back, big like, deal, I might as well start, right? It's that whole, mm-hmm. let's take one step and see what what happens. Mm-hmm. So I get into the water and it's an ocean swim. So I get through the waves with one arm and I'm kicking like nobody's business. And I'm exhausted. Which is not
1: good nah, because it doesn't create legs? a lot of propulsion and it's really tiring right. on your legs and you've got to ride and run.
0: Oh, totally. And I'm like, <gasps> you <laughs> know, and everyone's, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's, everyone's overtaking me and of course, everyone knows me as a freaking former world champion. So Simon's on the beach, he's taking a video and someone looks at him and goes, God, he sees me off the back and he says, hey, they'll let anyone, any, anyone in the profile these days, won't they? And Simon's chuckling to himself knowing it's me. So I come out of the water, I make it through, um, you know, 1500 meters with one arm, mm-hmm. so I'm pooped. And I get on, <laughs> I get on a bike, and just going through transition with one arm's difficult. Ugh, but I, can't I get, imagine. <laughs> I get on a bike, and I have to carry my bike down any of the descents. But I start making ground, and I make my way up to second position on a bike. And then, of course, my running is my strongest, and I run through. I like first. how
1: you just brush through the fact that you <laughs> rode through the entire field all the way up into second with a broken <laughs> shoulder after. Doing the swim leg with one arm.
0: It's true. I was, I think, I was twelve minutes, twelve minutes down. So
1: you made up twelve minutes. I made up twelve on the minutes.
0: Bike. Close. I think it was about. I made up like I don't know, ten minutes or nine minutes on the bike. So and then got on the run and ran through to the win. And it was like and that was it. Oh yeah.
1: So you win this race with a broken shoulder. <laughs> yep. You're swimming with one arm. Yep. And uh, get the prize money, renew the option. This is the story that Hollywood loves. This is the story that got recycled in every profile piece about you around the Oscars. You know, this is like the key moment in the hero's journey. You totally. know, biopic of, of Leslie.
0: Oh, totally. And it was, and it's funny because when you're in it, you don't really think about it. You just, I've built a career on just trying to take the next step forward. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, I'd come from such devastation of being at the pinnacle of something that I truly love. I mean, I'm a runner at heart. I love it to then not being able to do it and just dreaming about doing it of any shape or form for years and then getting on a start line. I'm like, I'm not gonna let a broken shoulder weigh me down. You know, I'm gonna make this happen, Mm. whatever it takes. So, you know, I think when you've come from that, you know, you just, you find a way.
1: It's an incredible story. And you're 10 years into the journey of trying to get this movie made. Right. How do you how did you remain undaunted and unrelenting? Was there a moment where you thought, are we really going to renew this option again? Oh, like yeah. let's move on. Like clearly the town does not want this project. There's plenty of ideas out there we can work on that might not involve us spending a bunch of money on an old book that that doesn't exactly lend itself to cinema in the way that maybe we misjudged, you know.
0: Do you know what? You're so driven by a, a need to tell a story and I felt like this angle that we had was so unique. I knew we just had to find the right person. And Hollywood is littered with stories of this took us 10 years, this took us 8 years, this took us 12 years. Whatever. And I thought to myself, this is our chance. We can't give up on a chance. But then also reconciling that in your head and saying, is this about the journey or is this about the destination? And so it was opening doors and it was giving us something because we were still able to get meetings with people based on the fact that we had the option to the rights of all quiet. People are intrigued. Like These no-name writers have that option, like what the fuck? So mm-hmm. we just saw this almost like a business venture. This is giving us opportunity. Just like you invest in your business, we're investing like that. So don't think so much about whether this film is gonna get made or not. You're seeing it as an opportunity to develop the connections and open doors that you couldn't mm-hmm. have had open beforehand. And that was a mindset. It's all about mindset. It's that kind of growth mindset, right? Um, and then and then it happened.
1: Right, so what was the inflection point that led to it getting made? Was it meeting Berger?
0: It was, it was all very circuitous and weird and complicated. So we had another producer that was helping us at the time and through various connections of his, like five times removed, Edward Berger got the script along with his producing partner Malta Grenier. And they reached out to us and we were kind of tied up with other people at the time. So it all got very complicated. But they reached out and said, we love your script. Would you guys consider doing this in German? And of course we always had, but it would never have been possible before. Mm-hmm. And Ed's vision, along with that idea, we were like, oh my God. So we had to quickly get out of the arrangement that we were in, which was very expensive and very stressful. And then we embarked on a, on a journey with these guys. And it was... When something feels so right, you realize how wrong everything felt beforehand. And when we, we got involved with, with Ed and Malta, it was like everything happened. You know, they say the overnight yeah. success, but it truly is like that. When everything is right in Hollywood, like it, it, when people aren't returning your calls, it's because it's not right.
1: <laughs> right.
0: If they want it, they'll call you then. So that's kind of how it was with us. Everything came together at the right time.
1: Mm and then everything happened really quickly. Yep. What's interesting about that is despite all of that, like you see the movie, it's exquisite. I mean, I haven't even like showered you with praise for like how much I love the movie. Like it's just, it's gorgeous, it's haunting, it stays with you. It's so eloquently, beautifully rendered. Every detail is is so thoughtfully and intentionally, you know, positioned to, you know, evoke the emotional response that you're trying to get out of the audience. Like I I, I just and you know what, I didn't watch it right away because I was like this movie, you know, like it it kind of popped out of nowhere. It yep. wasn't in the theaters and suddenly it's on Netflix and you know, no one was really talking about it until suddenly everyone was talking about it. And even then it took a while for me to say, all right, I'm gonna take the time to watch it. And then you see it and you're like, oh my God, it's nothing like what I, th- Cause you pr- because we have this relationship with this property in this book, right. we project onto it some baggage about when we read it in high school or whatever totally. it is. Um, but it's so, um, artfully made down to the finest detail and yet on every level it does defy all of those hardened laws of Hollywood right. you need an a-list star right. you need a a-list director you got to come in you know with the agency in a big package and you're going to go to the studios and there's right. going to be the the theatrical release and the marketing campaign and you have none of that totally. none of it i mean um you know, Berger's direction is unbelievable, but, and he didn't even, ha- he had some, like a few credits and he'd done some television, um, but he's not Ridley Scott. And then you find this kid, Felix, the whole mm. movie rests on this kid's ability to carry it. Totally. If that kid doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. Somehow you find this unknown um, person who's never starred in a movie before and, you know, just, shoulders that film with such pathos, Ugh. with this face that, you know, so tells pure. you everything you need to, yeah, it's like, it I'm is. like, how, is, how did all of these things come together in this way to make this work? And it's like on Netflix, totally.
0: in a foreign language. I know, I know. I think it all starts with intention and it all starts with passion. I think that, that both our script and then Ed's clear, clear passion about how he wanted to tell the story and why he felt it was important. And every single frame of that film is imbued with that. And it's such an important piece to, the, to German culture and what it represents. The sense of shame that Germans feel about any kind of war, the fact that they cannot view war in any kind of heroic sense, is so unique and so compelling that that elevated the material above anything that you see out there mm. and and so you know I really think that it takes it takes and and the interesting thing is Ed as a director, as soon as we we got this email from him, I reached out to a few people that I know in the industry and said, You know how was he viewed in the industry because we were very much in the outside we didn't we don't really know because there's like this whole inner circle of like who's talking about who that if you're on the outside, you have no fucking idea. So I reached out to a few folk that kind of knew and they were like, oh my God, he is like mega hot property right now. Mm, he so is he the he was next like best on thing. the
1: come, he was like, he was, he on was the about cusp. to pop, even we though he knew, didn't have yes. this body of work right. behind him.
0: So he's about to pop. Then you have this uh, amazing producer Malta who's done a lot of very quality work Uh, And then we presented it and then you have like, you know, it's European Netflix, which is operates very differently. We had Sasha Bueller, head of of European Netflix championing the project. So you have all of these individuals that combined make this epic quality. And then it's all about authenticity. It's all about bringing on the right people at every single level to make sure that this is gonna be the best film you've ever Mm. seen. And you know the attention to detail. I mean, when they cast Felix, he went through rounds of additions. Even although Edward knew he was right from the get go, he pushed him. I don't know. He was
1: like there was a relationship. Somebody knew him, and he was in a yeah. theater group or something it like that. My,
0: it was our producer's wife I that, see. That, yeah. that works in theater, and he was a, a, a quite a well-known theater. A, a theater actor, or at least, you know, making, making noises. And, you know, in some of the additions, for example, they, they dressed them all in his uniform to see how mm. he would walk, you know, to see how he would, you know, embody this character and every step of the way he was pushed and he was pushed and he came up and he came up and he, and then Edward was like, yep, he is our guy because he's going to be on set. Hours and hours and hours a day, and pushed emotionally and physically to the limit. I mean, his uniform when he'd come off a day of shooting was a hundred pounds.
1: Yeah, I read that somewhere. Yeah, you weighed the uniforms. I mean, wool like just absorbing all the water and the water,
0: and it was it was cold. It was muddy. It was, and then it was an incredibly emotional shoot. I mean, think some of those scenes, and what it means to people, and how impactful they are. You know, I mean. Gosh, so anyways, I I just think it, what it it tells me as well is so many young people have watched this movie and responded to it, that people are ready for content that matters, that has that kind of depth. But it all starts with story. And unfortunately, that can often get lost. And we're in the midst of a writer's strike right now Mm -hmm. and we're not given the value of, you know, of 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 being that foundational creator, it's the starting point of everything, and we're overlooked, uh, and marginalized, and lumped together. Well, we can get this person in that part, you know, and it becomes this mishmash, and then you end up with all this crap content.
1: Yeah, it's very strange. We're in this transition phase with how um, film, movies and television get made and how they get distributed. The, the syndication model, the broadcast television model, the ancillary revenue stream model, all of those are gone. And we have these streaming behemoths that um, do these buyouts where they pay all the money up front for the talent. There's no ancillary revenue streams coming later. Uh, and that's given them the opportunity to shortchange talent, yep. um, mostly the writers. On top of that, there is an utter lack of transparency around how many people are seeing these properties, how much money they're making, uh, such that um, you can't help but think they're making more money than they want you to know. Yep. Because if you knew there'd be more than the writers just going on strike right now. Totally. Is that a fair assessment oh, of the totally landscape?
0: Fair assessment. It's yeah. only fair assessment. and you know, there's people put in these positions, it becomes just another business metric, right? And again, the heart of of storytelling, what it means and its impact um, has become so diluted and pushed away. It's become so separated from the business aspect. I understand it's a business, you know, that money needs to be made. Films are expensive to make. So, but at the same time, you've got people in these positions that have no idea about story, about script, you know, and they're giving you feedback or they're green lighting things based upon what? Based upon, you know, how other things have done well in the past right. or what that package is. But, you know, nobody's read the Can the you make script.
1: it more like this?
0: Oh God, if I'm told, oh, can we have a, another, uh, can we have a, a female John Wick please? Mm-hmm. It's
1: like, oh my God, <laughs> When you're making the movie, I assume you're on set for...
0: Well, this is the whole other story. <laughs> okay. This is a travesty. So, it, this happened during COVID. Right. So, we were not allowed to be on set. Mm. And after 16 years of getting this project on board, we we're in LA, it's shot in Prague and we were having to watch it from afar. Oh my God. And that was the hardest thing ever. It was brutal. And it's like, it's not that like we wanted, it wasn't about input, it wasn't about control, it was about the beauty of seeing these collaborators come together. Why
1: couldn't they figure out a way to get you there?
0: That's a whole other conversation. There's some there's some
1: political strings attached yeah. to that one. I got you. Uh, that's a shame. I I just assumed you were there.
0: Well, um, let's let's put it like this. I think ultimately, there's a lot of people in this industry that really don't give a shit about other people that what they've done to make something happen. Uh, there's no empathy for a lot of people out there uh, and folks don't wanna help other people Mm -hmm. make their way up Mm. the ladder, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's a zero sum game perception.
0: Which of course we know it's not. The more you help, the more you get back.
1: Yeah. Of course, it's a people. It's a people business, it's right? And people it's like, like to work with the people that they like, right. and people remember when people were helpful to them. It's oh, so totally. insane that I, I don't get yeah. it. I
0: don't get it. But yeah. well, I do get it. It's wrapped in ego, but
1: fear, yeah. and greed, mm-hmm. and uh, a lack mentality. There's yep. only so many projects and only so many people who can get credit, et cetera. Yep. Um, the big question I have for you. Uh, is... Did you
0: design my Oscars dress? No, no. we're gonna get okay, to okay, the okay, Oscar okay, okay, stuff. Okay,
1: okay. I'm working my I've got lots of Oscars questions, but here's the biggie. Uh, you wrote the screenplay, obviously you you know Ian and you you, you there's three of you. Um, but you optioned the property and you renewed that option for sixteen years and made sure that you held on to the rights to get that thing made. The role of producer, the title of producer. Uh, can be defined in many ways. In my book, that entitles you to a producer credit. So although you did not receive the Oscar for best adapted screenplay, you won the BAFTA. um, We're gonna get into your reaction to all of that. Uh, I'm curious why you're not a credited producer on the film because I think that you deserve an Oscar for best picture.
0: So we are executive producers on the project, so which is something we always fought well we fought to have a full producing credit and to be involved in that capacity. they only
1: let how many um so for Oscar two, purposes there's, four there's, or
0: something there's no the, the the for Oscars, I think it's four, but there can be many producers in the project, yeah,
1: they can yeah, but only four can be like Oscar contending we yep. get to hold the the trophy guys. yeah.
0: So, and even that is kind of contentious. It depends on how much input you've had in the project itself during the production. And of course we weren't allowed on the production. Right. (laughs) So therefore we couldn't play a role. I think
1: you had a little input.
0: Yeah. But you know, it's one of these things that you learn. Unfortunately, we had a good lawyer, but we were kind of caught between the rock and a hard place in terms of, who we had involved in the project and who we had to buy out or buy off to get actually on the road to making it. And so we had to give up that full producing credit mm, in order to actually see. get it made.
1: Yeah, that so, becomes a bargaining chip mm-hmm, in getting the movie made. Yeah,
0: And we naively thought that we could fight for it after the fact, but of course-
1: Once you give up that terrain, you don't, mm-mm. right. Have you seen Mm -hmm. the movie that you wrote? (laughs) They're fighting over, you know, once you give up a little bit, you're not getting it back.
0: You're not getting it back. And then especially if the person doesn't want you to get it back, they're gonna do everything to ensure that you can not stake the claim.
1: Leslie, do you know how lucky you are? Like that we're gonna be making this movie with you. You should be grateful. Oh
0: my God. Do you know how many times he said that to us? Yeah, and of course, you know, you're new to it, right? You've been on, this is your last chance alone. You don't have any more money to renew an option. Mm -hmm. So you are incredibly grateful. So you're balancing between, oh my God, I'm grateful that this thing got made. And then I'm frustrated that we're not recognized for what we did to get it off the ground. So um, it was, you know, that that was a bittersweet pill to swallow and that followed us around the award circuit. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. was, It was emotional, it was hard. We were very much the odd ones out uh, until we were embraced. But, you know, all you can hold on to is your why. Your why is, what is this? Why am I doing this? I love to tell stories. And if this allows me to tell more, then I'll suck it up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's wank at the time, but you suck it up. So I just kept coming back to that. And then also as well, I'm never going to do that to other people (laughs) moving Mm -hmm. forward. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to take care of the people that I work with and make sure they're credited for what they did. Uh, I'm going to nurture people and mentor them and help them any way I can given the circumstance. And that was not our experience. And, you know, I went out of my way to be kind to um, be a uh, collaborative, to be supportive, uh, to stand back, uh, to support. And then it was kind of thrown mm. in our faces. Mm-hmm. Um, and not a lot of people know that and it's difficult to dig into, but it's been a hell of a learning. Yeah,
1: through. and it, it doesn't, It's it would be, you know, there's an argument that it is uncouth to complain, given right. you know the trajectory of of your success, to grouse right. about something like that.
0: Well, I think it's as long as people know our input, and again, you know our input was big, but at the same time, you know, what they did in production, what Ed did as a director, what all these other heads of department did, it's a collaborative process. It's amazing. We feel so bloody lucky. Like
1: Yeah, my question was know? was gonna be like when you were on set watching it unfold, did you have the sense that this was something special? But having been deprived that. of that, I suppose you were maybe you were zooming in or whatever and getting glimpses of it, but probably not until you saw a first cut of the movie did you get a sense of whether this is even gonna be good. It's probably fair to say the finished product exceeds what maybe you even imagined it could be. 100%. Um, But was there a moment where you're like, oh my God, like this is like even better than I expected or I can't wait for people to see this or were you thinking, Is any English speaking person gonna watch a German language movie? Like what was going on in your mind around expectations?
0: Do you know when we saw some of the first shots and some of the pictures and every frame looked like a piece of art, I was like, wow, this Mm. is, I mean, at least we're gonna get something for cinematography. But when we saw the first cut of the film, Uh, And I watched it, you know, you get a link from Netflix, you're allowed to watch it within 24 hours. And I watched it with Simon and my mother and father-in-law in in England, uh, Christmas, whenever it was. And um, I just sat there the whole way through, you know, it was so bizarre. It was so surreal having gone on this wild journey, then not being able to be on set, then watching your film and it's yours, but it's not yours and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. It was like a very bizarre experience and I would say I'd take that emotion of 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 total joy and total devastation, mesh it together and that's how it's been for the last, you know, hmm. I don't know, 8 months. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, <gasps> you know. Yeah. On so many different levels.
1: You're so accomplished and you've been so successful. Uh so you know the idea of another you know great height being achieved probably feels more in your grasp than it might to somebody else. Um, but I'm wondering whether you allowed yourself to start thinking about things like those external validations, like when does the Oscar you know possibility enter your mind? or was that not even part of it? It's just like I'm proud of the movie. I can't wait for people to see it.
0: I mean, I think it it always did. You always have a secret hope that it's gonna go that far, but you can't anticipate it. So you can't, you that's can't, what's You weird can't spend too much time putting
1: that, energy into that, in that thing that you can't control.
0: Exactly. You know? And you really truly can. And that was the biggest thing that came out of the Oscars. I mean, you can control to a point if you've got a great company and a lot of money behind you to create an awards campaign that really gets a word out, but it is so political and it's yeah. so complex that people have no idea. Yeah,
1: I think people don't understand that it 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 is, the campaign to Oscar is oh. not dissimilar from a presidential campaign. It's the amount of money losing. and yep. social engagement that yep that goes into that is insane. And you want a studio who's like, we understand that and we're we have a team that knows how to do that. Here's all the money. And Leslie, here's your calendar. You're gonna be going to lunches and cocktail parties every single day for the next forty five days.
0: Totally. And you can imagine me, I was like, I'll do everything. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm like, I'm gonna do it as I'll train from to two to
1: five AM and I will be at that lunch oh. in Beverly Hills.
0: <laughs> but the funny thing is is he didn't want to involve us, uh, Ian and myself in the campaign to begin with at all. So it was very much pitched. Why as was a, a German authentic film. Because mm, so you're were not going German? Because we're not German. We were adult. We were a, a, a scab That's on the That's so project. interesting
1: because you have the most compelling human interest story of anyone involved.
0: Well, they didn't know it because nobody knew who we were because we were pushed out. So again, it depends on, you know, who's creating the narrative and where you sit within that. And if you are pushed to the side and you don't fight for your place at the table, then nobody's gonna know. So it took me, uh, a good friend of mine, Andrew Kossoff, who uh, owns a big company here, I cycle with him. He paid for me because we couldn't afford it. He paid for me to have some PR of my own. And that's when the first couple of stories Mm. we managed to get in the big publications about who I was.
1: The what did the Wall Street Journal piece come out of that?
0: Uh, it it all, it all escalated. Yeah, so yeah. it started Towards with that. a Hollywood Reporter piece mm. uh, that, that that Simon and I wrote, um, and that that was the Costa Rica story. Right. And that just you know, and then all of a sudden it was like every, and then all of a sudden Netflix realized oh. Oh, this is your story. Oh, and you're a woman. And oh, this could right. be beneficial. As soon as it became
1: politically opportunistic right. for them. <laughs>
0: that was it, they loved me. So, okay. you know, yeah, it's, but you know, I mean, all, but, but, that, but they didn't know. right? Because the people in control of the film didn't tell them. So, and the people in control of the film didn't know because they didn't ask, because mm-hmm. they didn't care. Mm-hmm. So do you know what I mean? It's like we've got what we want. So see yeah, you later, guys. and it,
1: it, it's just a commercial reality of how that stuff goes. It down. can
0: be. it Doesn't yeah. need to be. I've met yeah. plenty of people that have amazing experiences, and I've had amazing experiences. You know, but at the end of the day, again, like you know, you know, four Oscars, seven Baftas. Like, come right. on now. Like, yeah. yeah. So
1: fourteen Bafta nominations, seven wins, including your your screenplay. You know, and that was at a moment where it was kind of shocking because it was a sleeper. So I would suspect that your camp was, you know, more than delighted at that result. It certainly wasn't a given. And that created momentum going into the Oscars. Big time. Um, Nine nominations, four wins. And if you watched the show, there was a certain kind of energy that felt like it was building because you guys oh, had a lot of success early, and it was like, yep. oh they're going to oh take God, it all gonna like they're going because yeah. once you you know get some of those other awards, you think well, they're just knocking all the pins down from here, yep.
0: oh yeah, and we yeah. truly thought that, and I think that the whole BAFTA is so fascinating the politics of it, but I think we got such support at the BAFTAs and in the UK because it's a very European story. Sure. It's a European production and you know, I'm gonna be contentious here and say that they focused on the craft of the film. It wasn't about the wokeness of the project, not taking anything away from the other projects, but again, it becomes a political campaign uh, when it comes to the Academy, Mm -hmm. you know, is diversity represented? Is, you know, the female voice represented? All of these issues then become this massive thing. Whereas I'd say in the UK, all of that is almost kind of pushed aside. And it's like, well, which is the best fucking film? You know, and you know, or which has the best craft or why? and. And so we had a sense we'd do well in the Baftas because in the campaigning up to it, like I am not joking, I'd walk in a room and people would find out what I'd, you know what 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 I was a part of. They would get down on their knees. And they'd be like, "Oh my god!" You know, you're right. like, "Wow, this is amazing." Um, so that was cool. But the Baftas itself was the best night ever, 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 ever. It was so fun. Um, I managed to get a ticket from my mum. And she was Uh like, do you know what I mean? Like she's in her 70s now. My sister took her out, she got her fancy dress, Netflix flew her down, fancy hotel, the whole bit, paparazzi outside. I have my own dress designer, hair and makeup. My old man comes down with my stepmom, and it's like, it's it's just amazing. And then of course we went everything. Right. Do you know what I mean? It was like, what?
1: And in that moment, the surreal, you know, aspect of that experience to reflect upon the 16 years and the toil and the doubt and the broken shoulder and the Lyme disease and the, you know, you name it that you endured to persistently shepherd this project to fruition. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's it's awe-inspiring and incredibly, you know, it's just incredibly inspirational
0: it's on a, like on the stage that night was pure joy. I mean, pure joy. And afterwards we went out and we parted until 4am. Anybody that knows me knows like I'm eight o'clock at night I'm in my bed. Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? So 4am I, I was so hyper. And one of the best things was the next night after the BAFTAs, we took our parents out for a meal, like a fancy meal, put the BAFTA in the middle and to share it with our families, like this massive journey and this success, like I really relished in it because I I feel like so much of my athletic career, I've been about the future and you know, what's next, what's next, Mm -hmm. you know, oh my God, I can't live up to this. I really felt like uh, during that time I was in the moment um, and it was like dreams coming true. Yeah, it's cool. It was. It was. It was so. I'm not joking mm. when I say like massive stars are coming up to you because I had. This yeah, book. I know.
1: Yeah, I want to hear about like. I know you met like Tom Cruise. Like throw some at me.
0: What? <laughs> so you have this. Um, you have the the Academy luncheon for nominees, and it's more relaxed. People are chatty chatting. And of course, Tom Cruise is nominated. And you're going around and you're speaking to, you know, I'd met Steven Spielberg, which was amazing. Um, a bunch of other people, and Tom's at this do, and I see him. And normally he's got a ton of people around, and there's a little window, and I go up to him and I went, "Hi, Tom. I'm Leslie Patterson with All Quiet." He said, "I know who you are. I know your story." He said, "How many hours a day do you train?" I'm like, "Oh my god, this is so You're gonna have a
1: training. Real. You're gonna have a training conversation with Tom.
0: I swear to God, like I'm desperate to meet him yeah. again to like really dig into what he does and how he recovers in that, you know? But it was just, that was very weird. Uh-huh. So it's just, and what you realize, I mean, they're all for the most part, they're, I mean, they're all just people and the people at the top generally are super nice and they love what they do. They're into their craft. They're that top 1%, right?
1: What is the the shared DNA sensibility ethos between, elite athletes and these elite creatives that you were able to bump elbows with through that experience.
0: Absolutely the same. It's not about the outcome, it's about the process. So they love what they do. They love their craft every single minute of it. They're obsessed with being the best that they can be in every single moment to, and that's where their joy comes, not in the end result. Mm. The end result is like the icing on the cake or but that's not even, you know. So you all sort of, you bond over the silliness of it, of of the end result in a way. Right. Um, yeah, you really, you really relate to each other because of the passion of why you're doing what you're doing.
1: Mm. There is something just completely inane and absurd about pitting creative expressions against each other in a competition. It makes yep. no sense, and yet for some reason it, it captures the imagination of the world who wants to ah. see who's gonna win these things. Um, but the whole thing is just, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason or objective way to say, this movie's better than that movie when they're just apples and oranges and both beautiful expressions saying yep. something interesting and important and, and resonant in their own right.
0: Totally, but then but and then
1: yet you are an athlete, it. and you are yep. competitive. You don't yes. win world championships Mm-mm. without wanting that trophy. Yep. So when you're at the Oscars mm-hmm. and it's your category, and they're listing out the nominees, and you're sitting there with your speech in your hands, yep. What is happening?
0: It was brutal. I have to say, it was the worst night of my life. <laughs> <It felt> like <laughs> Everyone's like, oh my God, the Oscars, this and that. But I was First so nervous. First of all, it nervous. goes on forever, right? Like
1: people aren't ah. even in their seats most of the time and you're like, is this ever gonna end? It's,
0: it is so exhausting because I started getting ready at what, I don't know, 9 a.m. You've got dress designers, you're getting hair and makeup, you're this, you're that, then you're driven there, then you're hanging around hours of waiting and waiting and waiting and kind of being uncomfortable, kind of being nervous. Then you're in the seat and then you can't really absorb. This is your first Oscars. You're wondering, are you ever gonna get there again? There's a lot of kind of like internal devastation about what's occurred anyway, about your lack of involvement. And then you're waiting there and I've just spent the last three months talking about the narrative of how dreams come true and I can achieve anything and I'm an I amazing and the whole of Scotland is behind you winning. And I'm sitting there, I'm holding Simon's hand, I'm holding Ian's hand and I'm like waiting for the name thinking, oh, this is gonna happen. I've willed everything into existence. So of course this is gonna happen
2: uh-huh.
0: and it doesn't. And I am not, I am not joking when I say I looked at Simon and went no, I'm like, thank God they didn't have a camera on me. <laughs> they I probably was,
1: did. They just chose not to. Not to show, to, show thank it. Thank
0: God I was, and it was so bizarre because in sport you have time to get used to the devastation. Because normally it's a longer race. You know whether you're having a good one or not, and mm-hmm. generally not a sprint finish. So you're kind of at peace with it. I was not at peace with this at all, and. You know, I I know Sarah Polly who won and she's amazing and she's gorgeous and such a lovely person. So you're definitely happy for that. And then you're happy for the four Oscars that you win. You win best international where you're not invited on the stage, which is another thing. And again, it's this weird dichotomy of like, you should be happy, but you're devastated. You should be happy, but you're devastated. And then pure exhaustion of what you've just been through and everyone telling you, you should be enjoying yourself. This is the Oscars, oh my God, you know. So needless to say, it was like the parties afterwards, I just wasn't interested in. Mm. And which is so crap to say, but like I find it really hard. I just find it really hard. I
1: appreciate the honesty. You know, the political answer that you always get is, oh, you know, I was just happy to be nominated or whatever. The reaction shots on the faces of the people yeah. that don't win who are like,
0: ah, and like, it's like and you're like, Insights no, are I'm dying. pissed.
1: I should have won. I thought I should. I yep. thought I deserved to win. I didn't yep. win. I'm mad. How am I going to get back there? Like, yep. That's the killer that wins five world championships yep. coming out. Yep. You know, this, this like unicorn, unlikely animal who's found her way into this creative world where that sensibility isn't like, doesn't quite jive with how everybody else kind of functions as political animals to, um, you know, make their way. And I thought, I, I read that and I was like, good for you. You were just like calling it like you felt it and saw it.
0: Yeah, cause it's, <laughs> do you know, it's funny because like, I think that maybe that's why I'll be successful is because I'm I'm, I'm candidly honest, but in a nice way if it comes from a place of this is my belief, I'm going to tell you what I really think mm-hmm. um, in the nicest way possible, uh, you know? And I think that's where true greatness comes. Um, yeah, you know, but, but man, But when I reflect on that night and and all of the other things, we did have some good moments in there, you know, I remember after it happening, I I, I ran to the bathroom and here's the funny thing about the Oscars, right? So, you know, you're sat there and you have these commercial breaks, right? And they're like, I don't know, two and a half minutes, three Mm -hmm. and a half minutes, everyone's different. And they don't tell you when your category is coming up, you know, roughly, but not exactly. And they close the fucking doors if you don't make it back from the loo in time. So you can't get back in the auditorium. So you're sprinting in your heels and dress to get to the toilet. So that you can get to the loo, do a piss, come back and get in in case you miss your category. Uh-huh. So I I needed the bathroom after we'd lost and I run down and you know I'm devastated. I come back up and I know a bunch of a bunch more of our categories are coming and I miss the doors, you mm. know, I don't make it back in time. Uh, but on the way, Kate uh, Kate Blanchett's there, she gives me a big hug, you know, and I'm like, okay, it's not that bad really. Yeah. All right, okay. The queen. And I end up hanging, hanging outside with Phoebe Waller-Bridge mm. and she is as funny as you can possibly imagine. So it's like you have all of these little vignettes of moments that are so fun and wild in amongst all of this like, just Weirdness. tough shit.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. You know. I feel like I'm recovered from it now, but that next morning, I, I I cried all day Monday. Oh. And it wasn't. It wasn't. And again, it wasn't so much even about the fact that it was about the fact that we lost, but it was more about. I felt like this opportunity could launch a career, and it has already. But it could really launch it, and that that had been lost. And compared to everyone else involved in the production, their careers are already there Mm. and they're already going, ours are not. This is our first step. And because we'd been marginalized so much in the lead up to it, I felt like, oh my God, we've lost our opportunity. So that's where I felt devastated. Um, But then you kind of kick yourself up the backside and you say, okay, I'm just gonna have to use it. I've fought back from worse, like let's use what we've got here, it's still amazing and you create your own opportunities.
1: Well, I think people are are learning more and more about the story. I mean, you did win the BAFTA, you got nominated for an Oscar, the doors are opening. I do see a bright future. I mean, of course you would have liked it to have gone a different way in a number of different you know aspects of that whole journey. Um, but I don't know, man, I'm pretty confident <laughs> you're gonna figure it out. Oh. You, I mean, if you could be, that persistent, focused, diligent, disciplined, hardworking to you know, create what you created in this project, which let's face it, it's your first screenplay. Right. Um, I think that the skies are, are, are looking blue ahead.
0: Oh, they are. Yeah, so gonna... I know
1: you, got a, you have a lot of projects now. Is there one that yeah. can you talk about what you're working
0: on that's coming up next? Yeah, so we're shooting a film in Scotland in October which is really exciting. It's a psychological thriller that we've written and produced, uh, we're producing. And um, we've got Karen Gillan, we think who is, is coming on board uh, uh, to star on it. Mm. So that's, that's mega cool. We have a big project in Africa. That's why we were in London seeing the king uh, of Ashanti. Uh, and that's a true story. Um, we have an amazing project set in the travelers community in Ireland. Um that's like a father daughter story, um, a little bit like the fighter. Uh-huh. Um, and then we have a bunch of others, you know, it's for us, it's about jumping into these crazy, wild, exciting worlds and finding a commonality, finding a thematic essence that digs into something in our society that we wanna talk about. that means something to us. Mm,
1: beautiful. And how are you gonna, um... Keep the training up, or what is what is the perspective on racing and all of that? Like, how does that fit in, on a relevance level and you know, kind of a, a performance level for you?
0: Racing means something totally different to me now. It's it's about community, so I love to race now to go and meet my friends and to have an experience, not for the outcome. So I really actually don't mind that much. Um, about the results, which is both good and bad. Um, So, it's gonna be destination races, it's gonna be fitting them in in between films, when I have the time, when I have the inclination, training on set, having fun with that, you know?
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, I like that. I mean, I think that's appropriate. With yeah. everything else that you have going on right now, it is. It using would seem kind of lunacy to for it to be different than that, you know, <laughs> honestly,
0: right? Oh, totally. And I think yeah. it's just using it as inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, training and racing is inspiration for my creative world now rather than an end point. Right. right.
1: Um, I'm interested in, you know, when I reflect back on the traits and the behaviors that kind of led you to this place, obviously there's talent. And like I keep saying, the grit, the perseverance, the discipline, the hard work, um, the mindset, the positivity, optimism, all of that. I'm curious, given that you've said so many of these things are deeply ingrained in just who you are and the way you've always been, how much of this do you think is teachable? Because you and Simon have written this book, The Brave Athlete. You talk right. about these three different minds. Um, for somebody who is looking to level up their approach to the things that they care about, like where can someone begin to cultivate um, more of these uh, characteristics that could you know, lead them in a better direction?
0: Mm, it's incredibly teachable. Um, I mean, as you well know, you know, folks like Huberman talking about it, but you know, the neuroplasticity of the mind, right? You can change the wiring in your brain. And I just view it like a muscle that needs working out. Uh, And you can change the composition of that. Um, one of the most defining moments for me in my sport was when Simon taught me about the anterior cingulate cortex that sits behind the eyes and it monitors um, emotional and physical pain and it actually, as it experiences adversity, it grows and gets denser. I mean, that's kind of a rudimentary Mm -hmm. sense of it. So, for me, it was like, okay, so if I do harder things, it's going to get bigger. So then I can cope with more harder things. Oh, that makes sense. So then I need harder things to do. So you know, I think that's the essence of understanding how the brain works and that's what we get into in our book. We give a brain mental model so that people can understand what's going on in our heads, that we're not crazy you know, this is actually, you know, these are the reasons why we have thoughts and feelings that we don't want. And then certainly in our book, we get into different categories like identity, confidence, body image issues, creating an alter ego, like all these different things. And we give tools, right? Mm -hmm. Almost like homework to work in it. Because we work on our bodies, but we don't work on our brain. right? So.
1: Yeah, and you know, in the athletic context, I mean, I love that, it's fantastic. You know, at the highest level, you have um, parity of of work ethic and for the most part, talent. Like these people are all incredibly talented. There's only so many hours in the day, they're all maximizing them, at least in terms of their physical training. Underappreciated is the mental game. And perhaps that's because it's less understood, or at least the principles, or tools, or strategies for training the mind are still something we're we're like learning about, right? Right. Um, and haven't been canonized to the extent that like we know how to train for a marathon. Like it's right. kind of like a t- you know it's there's no you know big secrets there, but the right. mind still is this mystery box. And to the extent that through neuroscience and you know what your husband does and people like Huberman um, are working on helping us to better understand that and provide us with tools where it's like, oh, if you do this, this happens in the same right. way you have a physical, muscular, right. skeletal response to right. a training stress that we can do this with our minds. Um, that's really exciting and seems to open up a, a, you know, a giant horizon in terms of performance breakthroughs, not just in athleticism, but in literally anything.
0: Well, it's always been seen as this ethereal thing, this separation of mind and body. And now we know through neuroscience that there's a physiological component to that, and we can have an influence on that. So I think it's just a paradigm shift, isn't it? And that takes time. Um, And it can be uncomfortable, it can be frustrating, but certainly what we've tried to do is define this a bit more and to you know you know give tools, give strategies things that are really like you can taste them you can feel them you can touch them and we came about that because you know Simon's background, people like Huberman but then for Simon to peek behind the curtain of a crazy pro athlete and be like, Fucking hell, okay, I was taught all this in the textbooks, but now I've seen what actually happens, okay. You mean through like imaging? Well, I just mean like living with a professional oh, right. athlete. Like, uh-huh. what do they go through? What are the things that impact them? Um, you know, and how can we help with that? So often I would come back from training and be like, okay, Sai, I tried this and I tried that from a mental perspective. And he'd be like, oh, well, that makes sense because the science says that this and that. And maybe if you try this. And so we had this wonderful intersection of this kind of creativity of me figuring out. Mm-hmm how I work and operate and then the science assignment coming together and having something actually tangible. Yeah, the to experiential
1: work. with yep. the academic. Yep. Yeah, super interesting. Um, all right, we got to wrap this up, but I, I want to leave, I want to kind of end this with some practical tools or advice for somebody who is interested in learning more about how performance works and how it might benefit their life if they, were to learn a little bit more about the brain or are trying to find a way to get more grit in their life or yep. test themselves in new and interesting ways, but are completely unfamiliar with how they might embark upon that.
0: So, read our book, you yeah. <laughs> See how I just, come I was on. like, here's, Here you let me, here's a play. help me help yeah. you, Leslie.
1: Here's oh your plug, God. I'm serving it up See? to you.
0: So, read our book <laughs> and right. then, you know. Do something that totally scares you every day. I mean, truly, honestly, um, and then get to know yourself. You know, point the finger back. Who am I? How do I operate? What works? What doesn't? What do I like? What don't I like? What's my heart of darkness? Create your own film world. Get to know your character. That mm, would be my advice. Yeah,
1: create your own hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Become the star of your own See? movie. You've got it. Um, Beautiful, that was really fun. Thank you. It
0: was, thank you so much for having me
1: on. It's such an amazing story. Like I I hopefully, you know, this will help get, get your narrative out there a little bit more. I find it to just be captivating. And the idea that you're just at the beginning of all of this is like really exciting.
0: Well, you know, hopefully we can make a film together one of these days.
1: That would be cool. In the meantime, everybody, if you haven't seen All Quiet on the Western Front, I don't know what you're doing, make a point of uh, checking that out right away. And if people wanna connect with you besides the book, where's the best place for them to find you?
0: Uh, You can reach out to us. Uh, IMDB has my Mm -hmm. information up there. Uh, Also braveheartcoach.com has more information. Yeah, I was gonna, are you
1: still coaching? You're not still coaching anymore.
0: So a little bit, because you know what, it's like i love my athletes and my people. so you have co- you have athletes still, under your belt right do. now so yeah on the way to the oscars i was talking you know to an athlete about wetsuits and watches and yeah
1: oh my god i can't believe you're still doing that i know
0: i don't know how much longer it's I so can...
1: funny i went to your website and i was like this thing hasn't been updated it's since like 2016 like <laughs>
0: I know, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) You go to the Oscars, you have this website, your personal website up there and it's like, you're like, we're working on this movie that we hope gets made one day.
0: (laughs) Hey listen, I need help with my (laughs) social media. I know you do.
1: Um, Yeah, and you're, you're, Social media is Leslie does try. It is right. I think you might need to change that a little. I mean, you do do try. I that's do good. Try. Yeah, I
0: know that's kind of the point. So it's a it feels of feels that,
1: reductive at this I phase suppose. of your life. though. all right, anyway. you're gonna help me, right? Uh, I'll help you. Yeah, you. for sure. All right, thanks. Uh, awesome. It's so fun. Thank oh,
2: you. that's good. Let's... Oh my God, I'm sweating bullets.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's it for today.